Hey everybody, we have a very special episode for you guys today. Uh, episode 274 with the amazing Mila Jensen all coming to us all the way from uh, uh, Amsterdam today. Um, it's going to be a really, really great episode. Uh, thanks for joining us and we, uh, we look forward to seeing you guys again uh, uh, in the future. Uh, thank you so much for joining us, Mila. Uh, you want to uh, just uh, uh, say hello and then we'll introduce the, the rest of the panel. Hello to everyone. I'm very happy to be here. It's an honor and uh, I'm sure it'll be good. <laughs> We're super, super excited. I know uh, Fumi and Wes have, have spoken to you in the past and have some great insight into some other questions that didn't get a chance to ask you. And I know I have an awesome list of stuff to talk to you about. You've really been a pioneer in many aspects of the, the hash making scene and uh, we're very excited to have you on today. And we also have Wes Engine on with us today. He's a, 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 our resident expert in Mila. Uh, thanks for joining us, Wes. <laughs> Bless you're muted. Thank you, thank you. I'm excited to be here, uh, man. It's uh, I'm I feel weird like being here with Mila because I've read her book and I feel like I know everything about her and like I've been her friend for a long time, but she knows absolutely nothing about me. So that's but it, but what an amazing book! I recommend everybody should pick it up and read it. It's a it's it's, it's an interesting guide in life and path and what's truly important and. It's a great book, well written and amazing book. Anyways, I should get on to Fumador. How you been? How you doing, buddy? Cheers, everybody. Uh, nice to see you, Mila. Uh, Mila uh, nice to see you, Wes, in the morning. Uh, cheers, buddy. Uh, it's like we're uh, uh, not just nocturnal animals. Can you believe that? But uh, nice to see you, Mila. Cheers. Uh, welcome. That is correct. Neither me nor Wes nor Fumi ever sleep. Just see you guys. Facts. Um, <laughs> Uh, I did want to give a quick shout out before we get uh, a little too far along in the episode. Um, if you guys are watching uh, live or you're watching this in the next 24 hours, um, please come out and hang with us over in Oklahoma City. We'll be at Guyatt's Restaurant in Oklahoma City. Um, we have a seed swap. We'll be giving out a, a ton of good genetics. So if you're a home grower and you just need to get some good genetics to get started, we got you for free. You know, just come out. We'll, we'll support you. Um, we're going to have, um, uh, they have gluten-free, dairy-free, vegan uh, uh, all the different hippie check boxes. They got food for all that stuff. They got great beer. Uh, and we're going to be hanging out with Brendan Rust, myself, and um, uh, Jordan River. And we're going to have uh, lots of cannabis to smoke. We have aquaponic cannabis. We have living soil cannabis. We have lots of amazing um, uh, organic and sustainably produced cannabis to share with you guys. So uh, we're looking forward to, to seeing all of our listeners out there. And a shout out to Jordan for putting that together. All right, um, Mila, thanks a lot for joining us today. Uh, uh, we kind of did a little bit of different uh, time schedule just to make sure we could accommodate you and get you on. We're super grateful to have you on. And uh, thanks everybody who's watching us on our, our less than traditional time frame uh, uh, to be part of this. So uh, tell us a little about yourself. I know you're, uh, I mean, man, where to even start? Um, uh, uh, how did you get started with cannabis? Maybe initially, I know I first read that you, uh, I think your first uh, form of cannabis was a joint. Um, what kind of got you into the cannabis scene initially? And in, uh, and kind of spawn this whole amazing uh, life that you've had? Um, I don't even know what, why I smoked that first joint, except that my boyfriend was studying medicine and wanted to see the result of somebody smoking a joint. 
And I did, and I rolled on the floor with laughter. And from the first talk, it's been my drug of choice ever since. In those days in Amsterdam, you couldn't find any weed. So it was a hash joint, and that's still what I smoke today. That's wonderful. Um, so um, uh, you've had a chance to really travel uh, across the world in a way that I think the only other person we've ever had the pleasure of speaking to with is, is Frenchie in terms of scope and, and just total knowledge level when it comes to traditional hash making. Um, uh, I, can you tell us a little bit about maybe some of those early years in traditional hash making? So much has changed in the world when it comes to hash making. And there was kind of this um, almost older culture kind of before the 70s and 80s when the U.S. really kind of and the Reagan administration really ramped up the, the war on drugs. There was a, a completely different world when it came to hash making. Um, can you tell us a little bit about what it was like to kind of experience and learn from some of the masters back then and, and how, um, you know, how much different it was than, than today? Because it's something I think a lot of people don't fully appreciate unless they've had a chance to talk to you or Frenchie or some of the other amazing people that um, had that experience firsthand. Uh, in those days, the 60s and 70s, there was a whole movement of hippies traveling east. Uh, we were not the only ones, but uh, it was a very magical journey. I mean, I'd smoked hash in Amsterdam. And then, well, you should know that actually all the way from Northern Africa to China, people only smoke hash. You won't find anyone really along that route that is smoking weed at all. So many of these countries, especially Afghanistan, have been making it for thousands of years. And I'm sure the whole, their whole breeding of seeds is towards making hash, not making weed, making hash. And uh, yeah, traveling along East Afghanistan was the first place that the hash was totally amazing. And for most of the time I lived in India right up until the late eighties, that Afghan hash was my favorite. What, uh, what is the big difference, I guess, uh, between the Afghan hash and the Indian hash? Is it the genetics or the preparation or the method? Is there a, a big difference in the method of, of, of how they made it? Or? It's definitely mainly the genetics, but also, yeah. Uh, whereas in Afghanistan, they sifted it over uh, silk. Um, in parts of India, they rubbed the buds. So that's quite a different technique. Um, it's not the um, most economical technique because I think a lot of it gets lost, but it has a special flavor and a special consistency. Locally, they call it charas. It's what the sadhus smoke in their bomb and their chillums, bombolinat every time. Uh, for them, it's uh, like a spiritual thing. But it was really uh, quite amazing in those days and there was no problems uh, getting the hash or anything. But I also must say that while people like Frenchie really went there to learn, I mainly just went there as a consumer. I wasn't in the first instance uh, interested in the seeds, collecting seeds or, or anything like that. Uh, that all came much later. But I that, was there. It was great. <laughs> that actually leads to one of the questions I had from uh, the book. When you go to one of the one of one of these temples, 
and you meet with these sadhus. How do you impress upon them? Because I don't imagine they smoke with everybody. Do they smoke with everybody or do you have to, do you, do you have to, is there some? No, there's an openness. Anyone who wants to sit with them, they will welcome that person. Okay, very good. I was wondering uh, that. Uh, very quickly, it comes about for the next uh, children they make up. They're also going to pass it to you. Oh, very nice. Yeah. And uh, later years, like in, when I already had the pollinator company and everything, I went back to India and I actually took some isolator yeah. ash with me. And the next temple I was sitting in, I said to the sadhus, okay, we uh, can smoke some uh, hash from Holland. Oh, they were very impressed. And uh, <laughs> uh, they didn't much like the looks of it. It was kind of crumbly. And uh, I said, don't worry, just mix it with your chili mix and try it out. Oh, they were quite mind blown by the effects. Very nice. Yeah. Is there any... Um, uh... Uh, well, I guess before I get to that question, uh, you mentioned Frenchie. Uh, Frenchie was a, a friend of mine, and, and uh, I think all of us were, were shocked to lose him last year and really was a huge loss to the cannabis community. I, I know I certainly shed a few tears over that one uh, uh, when, he, when he passed. Um, you, can you tell us about any maybe particular stories? Because I know you were one of the few people to actually you know, spend a little bit of time with him over there, ran across him uh, here and there. Uh, do you have any funny stories or anything like that? Uh, we didn't really get together till I think it was at one of the uh, Emerald Cups. Okay, we, my misunderstanding. And we had been to the same New Year's party <laughs> in Goa. Uh, <laughs> but um, he was like quite a bit younger than me. I was a family person with four kids. He sure. was uh, a free man. <laughs> so <laughs> we meet over there. Plus he hung out with the Frenchies being French. Sure. And I didn't. So we didn't really hook up over there. Okay, uh, my misunderstanding, I apologize. Because so many stories were similar. I think a lot of friendship depends upon similar experiences or memories. And we had so much to share. And he went to the same places I'd been to and loved them as much as I did and enjoyed the smoke. Yeah, no, it was, uh, he was a great person. And he was so fantastic at spreading the word and making it known that the old style hash is pretty good too. And um, it was a terrible loss and so unexpected, so unexpected. Yeah, I know. I, I think the first three people I sent it to uh, the news to were like, you, are you joking? And I was like, why would I joke about something like that? <laughs> it was really, uh, really crazy. Um, so uh, you talked a little bit about um, traditional hash, hash making and traditional hash. Is there um, any techniques that you think kind of have been lost with some of that older technology and the older methodology? I know um, you talked a little bit about uh, the, the silk sifting with the Afghan stuff. And one of the other things I know that's very unique to the Afghan and, and to a lesser extent, I, think, I believe also as well, the Moroccan is that they age the trichomes on the plants uh, rather than separating them and aging them afterwards, which is more Western. Um, do you think that makes a big impact or is that just a misnomer on, the, on, on our understanding on that? Or? As far as I know, anyway, Morocco for me doesn't really count as a hash producing country, even though it's the biggest now. But they only learn to make hash from the returning hippies coming from the east. Uh, I was in Morocco in 65, there was no hash at all. They smoked something they called keef, which was black tobacco and little buds 
chopped up together, but it wasn't harsh. And they'd put that in their sipsy and smoke it. Um, but in the East, yeah, doing it over the silk screen eventually became the inspiration for me to develop the pollinator. Because when I came back to uh, Holland in 88, and I started growing weed, which was still uh, tolerated a lot more than it is nowadays. And I had four children to put through school with all costs involved of that. So I grew quite a bit. So I had material. And in the end, I started making my own hash because I didn't particularly like what Morocco was producing at that time. And um, I used a flat screen and I used a flat screen maybe for a couple of years. And uh, only one night when I'm standing pretty stoned in front of my clothes dryer and I see how those clothes tumble around and realize that's what I'm doing over the screen. I'm kind of waffling, not rubbing, but waffling them in the air. And uh, so the next morning we got a, a second hand uh, clothes dryer and uh, removed the heat and tied a screen around the drum and threw in some material. And yes, the crystals fell through the screen down to the bottom. So that was actually the first mechanical way to separate the crystals. And that's probably, uh, that's one of the reasons now I became the hash queen. Because from that beginning, everything else involved, all the most super luxurious, deluxe, fantastic machines that are being put on the market now. Uh, it all started with this. And so we have these, we call them pollinators. You can see the drum, you put in the dried material, preferably in a cold environment, preferably frozen and just turn it on. And in five to 10 minutes, you have your A1 quality. Then you can press that up into hash, which reminds me, I didn't quite finish the story about Afghanistan because in my experience, they did sift it fairly soon, but then they would keep it in clay jars that were like um, closed off at the top with uh, beeswax. And these were not glazed jars, so they could breathe. And they would keep the crystals in there till whatever they had to smoke was nearly finished. Then they'd take out a new batch. It would usually be the size of a ping pong ball or a tennis ball. And they'd wrap it into a tight ball with a string and then beat it with a mallet. And the thing that happens then is that also the cell walls will break and the oil will come free. And you get this fantastic, beautiful, juicy piece of ash. Anyway, that was actually from your last question still. <laughs> Sorry, uh, yeah, no, I, I, I'm always fascinated about those old traditional methods because I feel like there's, I've tasted so many different versions of it and I always feel like it has this different kind of flavor profile that you know never seems to come out in a lot of the more modern Western uh, methodologies and I, I am do you think that more has to do with the whole um aging of the hash and that breaking those trichome heads and then allowing them to all kind of age together with that that skin on the outside that single oxidized skin on the outside or what what do you think really is the essence of that you know really large difference in flavor between those more traditional methods and the, the more modern stuff 
Well, I feel, still think genetics is the main influencer in this case, but um, um, oh no, I lost. I was going to. Can I can I say something? Because um, they don't break the trichomes open before they store it. They store them in powder form. Yeah, as close as close to. And from what I've been following with Baba, if you if you see the different areas they have different ways of doing it. So yes, there are places where they leave the plants in the field practically, and you see them with snow and everything, and then they take them in. But there's other places where they take them in earlier and they sift it, and then they store that and they keep it for long, like a year or, you know, they, they don't, we talk months and we feel like that's so long already. <laughs> well, they only have one crop a year. Yeah, so <laughs> it has to last them a year. <laughs> Here we can do multiple harvests a year if we feel like it's so inclined and yeah. have the possibilities. So I think a lot of it is due to the terrain, the, the area, what the country is like where they're working, if they're in the rocky mountains or if they're lower in fields. It's still quite a big country. Yeah, um, quite a big country. And the Indian traditional techniques of the rubbing, the rubbing is still going on. Yeah. Of course, when, when my mom first came out with the isolator, as opposed to the pollinator, this was something that went out there pretty quick. And there were friends, because like Frenchie, there, there are a lot of people who live in Goa or who live on the traveler scene, but would go up to the mountains in season time every year to do their rubbing. Yeah. And some of these people took isolators up. And personally, as a child smoker, I had a big fear that this would take over completely. But the local people love their chalas. They, they, they have a, a proper pride in their own product. So I don't think you're going to lose that. Unfortunately, the commercial is, you know, well, that's always the case. It'll be green and full of all sorts of stuff. And then you get somebody who either smokes his own or knows what money he can get for a good and you see the hand and it's like liquid gold on there. It's a big difference. Yeah. yeah. So I wanted to mention one time when I first started growing in Amsterdam, I was very proud of my indoor crop. I showed it to an Afghani friend who happened to come by and I'd known him well when I lived in India and used to get some of the best hash from him. And he was very impressed by my indoor grow. Uh, I mean, their plants don't really get nutrients. Their plants get water when it rains, and that's it. And uh, then I said, yeah, we're going to chop it down tomorrow. And he said, why on earth? I said, well, over here, they uh, smoke uh, weed. And I've learned that when 10% of the crystals start to change color, that's when it's the best time to harvest for that. And then I... Thankfully, I asked him, well, when would you harvest? You're only making hash. And he said, I would leave it another two weeks before harvesting. So that was interesting. I must say, uh, in our fast world in the West, there was never really time to try that out. <laughs> uh, we are, go ahead. Uh, also, Milos, do you want to introduce yourself? I know a lot of people don't... Um, haven't uh, had a chance to, to uh, know who you are. And there's a couple people asking who you are in chat. So I figured I'd give a chance to, to introduce yourself as well. 
Okay, sorry. So, uh, I, I tend to stick my head around the corner. <laughs> yeah, I'm uh, Mila, and this is my oldest daughter, Malus. Uh, she hitchhiked when I hitchhiked to India in 68. She had her fourth birthday in Kathmandu. That well, was my fifth. Oh, fifth birthday in Kathmandu. Yeah. So we were traveling when she was four years old. I would not uh, think now that was a good thing to do. But I was very convinced that wherever we were at that moment, that was where our home was. Um, so, yeah. That's the truth. Oh, yeah. I think uh, a lot of people say that they're in the cannabis culture, but uh, she was born into cannabis culture in a way that I think none of us, none of us really were. <laughs> Someone's got some background noise there. I'm not quite sure who. Oh, there we go. That was Wes. Okay. Um, sorry about that, guys. Um, uh, I had a question for you guys. Uh, so um, I think you're one of the most uh, expert people to ask this question. Um, what do you think is kind of the biggest difference between dry sift and bubble uh, or water separated hash? Um, uh, you're, I know that you do both are very experienced in both methodologies. And I think I'd love to hear your kind of breakdown on that. So I always ask the person if they are really interested in the taste and the flavor of a hash, they should use dry sift because all the terpenes and all the kind of everything is still there. I think in the water, even if you leave it in the water as short as possible, you do lose some of this. Most of the time it has less flavor and taste, but it's got on stronger. So I must say, I prefer the water hash. <laughs> when I smoke the dry sift, somehow it seems to be a bit woolly uh, in my mouth. <laughs> That for me is the main difference between uh, dry sift and uh, and people should just smoke which they prefer, as they should in anything. If they prefer weed, they should smoke that. There's no better or worse, and the only one to tell you what you like is you. So <laughs> stick to that. <laughs> uh, when you were traveling around uh, Asia and and uh, Central Asia and other areas. Did they have that kind of more refined uh, hash grading system that we often, you know, I've seen quite a bit of, of early, you know, stuff from the, the 80s and, and early 90s on that. Um, can you tell us a little about the grading systems that were kind of going on then as far as the different grades of hash that were being offered and sold and how they were being kind of quantified in terms of value? Yeah, I don't know. I'm, I'm not an expert on that. You know, the few times that I've actually gone out and bought Afghani hash was among others on the Khyber Pass between Afghanistan and Pakistan. And there it was being offered for $20 a kilo. Uh, I'm not, uh, yeah, it was good hash, but I, I'm not uh, such, how do you call it, a specialist that I know which is better. But for sure, there's many stories about, oh, you should have the hash from there or from there. But whether it was really a grading it was more like just different taste. Huh? Yeah, well, and there was some was good and yeah, some wasn't so good. I mean, I didn't really, I, I really didn't like the hash the Moroccans made in the beginning. For me, that was bad hash. And also always it's very dependent how greedy the person is. You know, the less he collects, the purer it is. 
and everything he collects more is actually what he doesn't want. But he can jump it up to like five, ten percent more volume and get that much more money. Now that's also just a personal thing. I think if you do these things, you should make the best <laughs> and stick with that. <laughs> I think Is that's between a smoker and a a, a dealer, a producer, a salesperson. If you're a smoker as well you know that that best is just going to get you that much more also so it's worth it <laughs> yeah and you would never want to smoke your own if it was shit so why would you do that to yourself <laughs> yeah exactly <laughs> is there any particular places that you just remember kind of having a, you know particularly exceptional hash or cannabis in terms of regions or areas or, or you know places that you could say hey you know if you ever get a chance to go visit this one place uh, or two places, is there anything like that that really stuck out in your mind through all your travels? Yeah, um, now they've become very popularized, but it's Kulu Manali Valley, uh, where it used to grow wild everywhere before. But basically all those valleys with similar uh, height, they will all have these products. So now I wouldn't maybe choose to go to Kulu Manali with every other thousand of tourists that's going there to find hash. Uh, I would experiment a bit and go 20 kilometers east or west of that valley and find similar valleys leading up to the higher mountains. And I'm sure the products you find there are just as good. <laughs> what, um, what kind of makes them... Uh... What separates them as being better than some of the other ones that you've experienced? Like what, what about it makes it better to you? Yeah, it's always the genetics. How high it gets you. Yeah. And yeah, also when, when, when soar certain plants, the plants that grow up at 9,000 feet are, I don't know the exact terminology, but it has to do with the sunlight they receive that is much more productive in producing fantastic mature crystals. I must say that's one thing that I find uh, uh, surprising in, for especially the States where people are so enamored with clear, transparent white ash. Now for me, I've always learned at that moment, the crystals aren't really mature yet. And from personal experience, I also know that in those last week, 10 days, whatever they have, that's when the crystals grow the most. They're the last thing to grow and to swell. So, and to swell. so why harvest them early? I mean, in the old days, I always thought, well, people are just so paranoid of the smell and I just want to cut it down ASAP. <laughs> it's fashion. But now the, fact, yeah, now the habit is they want it totally white and everything. But in actual fact, as an old hash smoker, I would think that is not the best time to harvest. Wait a bit. <laughs> I, uh, I, I couldn't agree with you more. I don't understand what the obsession with ivory or white hash is. I think that uh, just like you're saying, you got to have some some age to it because you don't get those sesquiterpenes. They take time. They have to start to break down some of the original monoterpenes to, to create them. And, and I couldn't agree more. Well, uh, probably because everything is so fresh, 
you're still getting quite a dose of THCA in there. And that is uh, one that you wouldn't get in more aged hashes. But with this fresh hash also, you take a dab, you shoot up sky high, but within five, 10 minutes, it's already gone. Well, if you smoke a real joint made with some beautiful old hash, it's gonna go slower. You're not gonna fly quite so high, but it's gonna stay half the afternoon. You're gonna feel very happy in whatever you're doing. <laughs> You know, I, I think that, uh, I don't know if it's social cannabis or just kind of ironic cannabis. I guess that's sarcastic, like people smoking ironically. But I think like when you get high for five minutes and then smoke again and smoke again and smoke again, I found that that's what people do at these clubs. And the clubs are somewhat rare, but Potan was just talking about how in Oklahoma you can sit there at a bar and dab, you know, next to your beer. That would be actually quite appealing that you could basically uh, smoke five minutes later, 10 minutes later, smoke again, smoke again, smoke again. It would very much like fit into the kind of social engagement. I don't know. It's not that old weed experience, like you say, where you get high for four hours and go do other stuff. But I mean, I don't know. It's a different way of looking at it. And I think it belongs in the fast life. Right. Everybody is leading or starting to lead. Or, and being 77 now, I'm not quite ready for that. So I like to stick to my joints. <laughs> I dab sometimes. But it's like smoking a whole joint in, in one talk. It, it, yeah. But the, the, the one thing the, yeah. I see you're lighting up. <laughs> joints rule. No, but the bonus with dabbing it, I understand also, and this is another point she made the other day, you can have a different flavor every time. You can try something else after 10 years. Me, if I'm trying out a few different pieces and I want to know which one, I, I sometimes have to try the next one tomorrow morning, first thing, because the rest of the day I'm stoned. I can't really tell as, as you can with that first joint. That's the best one. Because with the joint, yeah, it just kind of carries on. But if you're dabbing, you can really taste the difference and oh, I'm a different high and a different this. But yeah, I'm like my mom. I don't, I don't dab. I'm a joint smoker. And with the color story, what I was going to say before when you guys were talking about it, color used to come in where if you saw a piece that was red, is that Lebanese, you know? Or if there was a piece that had a golden glow to it, or if it was, that was more regional. You could tell where things came from with that. And it wasn't a judgment. And we had our own standard of oh the afghani especially if they had the gold seal on it well there you go you open the door for trouble because it's not so hard to put a gold seal on it so it took a few years but then the gold seal with the red wrap is coming from all over the place in afghanistan and it's you know so i've never trusted something that is classified as this without tasting it. You taste it and if it acts like that, then that's the one you want. Not because it's called a certain, it has a certain label on it. It's not a Levi's tag on it, you know? It's not a fashion. Everybody wants the Hulu Manali hash coming from the Parvati Valley, preferably from Milana. Well, there's millions of Indians who smoke now too. How much Milana? Charles is going, here we go. We got all sorts of beautiful stuff up there. Oh, yeah. Wow. Very nice. And how much of it was light? 
down at the bottom, in the middle there, we had a very pale one. That was a Moroccan. That's a new one. But if you're looking at all those different things, they're all dark hash because they've been aged and they've gone through this. Ah, wow. <laughs> <laughs> okay, let everybody draw. <laughs> but in India, how they were doing it when we first arrived, not that I was that conscious then, but I know that you had shops where you could go. This was set up especially in all the bigger religious centers like Benares or anywhere where the sadhus went, there would be a shop where you can there go were, and you could there buy. There were government shops. Yes, there were and government shops. And they sold opium, alcohol, and hash. No, I don't think they sold alcohol, but they had hash. No, they, they definitely had, had alcohol. Okay, I yeah, don't yeah. But all the drugs were there, and you just walked up and you could buy a bully of opium for however many rupees, or, you know, it was... That was before 86, I believe, no? When, or 84, when they started the war on drugs. That's when they joined up. I, mean, I can't remember. I don't know. And even to this day, you can still see some of them. There's uh, in Pushkar or in Benares. But you don't see any functioning officially. It's too dodgy for them. No, they were government shops. They were run by the government. Yeah. But they had all different classes. It wasn't like they just saw, here's the hashish. No, there was from different areas. So they classified a little bit. I used to go with James in, in, in Bengal sometimes. But they basically are just one of everything. One opium, one alcohol, one hash. <laughs> <laughs> and that was what you could get. <laughs> you had a... This was out in a village. So maybe if you went to a city that they would have more choice. I have no idea. <laughs> um, if you had a chance to spend a lot of time with the sadhus and stuff, can you explain to people what bong is and maybe like a, a re you know, do you know any recipes for making your own bong with the, the milk? And a lot of people don't know, it's a milk-based cannabis infusion um, that yeah. is a very good if you've never had it. And they, uh, I think the mostly they use fresh leaves and then they add things like cardamom and maybe a bit of honey and uh, different Indian spices, maybe some ginger, some lemon. And then they'd blend it and you'd get this kind of, and yogurt, yogurt was also used a lot. And then you'd get this pale green drink, which could be very uh, <laughs> important at the time. There's a, there's a compound in, uh, that lactobacillus bacteria make that actually enhances THC uptake uh, to yeah. a minor extent as well. Yeah. So it really yeah. can rock your world. And the fatty, uh, the, the oils in the milk that gives the THC, so the, yeah. the hash something to connect to, attach to, makes it easier. That's why we boil and make our oil use. So but the pan, doesn't come from the government shop. Bhang no. is available all over India. This is party time. This is once a year normally now, but it used to be for all the big festivals, the bang would be available. I think now we're down to it's only for, is it holy? Holy, holy. Yeah, holy. Wow. The festival of colors. <laughs> 
definitely something I want to get a chance to experience sometime for sure. The Pong or the Festival of Colors? Both. Both. <laughs> <laughs> Preferably. Um, uh, is there any other maybe kind of traditional, um, uh, maybe either Sadhu or some of the other different cultures out there that you've had a chance to experience? Maybe other foods or drinks or other things that maybe people haven't heard of or experienced before uh, that might be, you know, newer in there in the Western world? Mm, not hash products, but I always thought they were just incredible. They blew my mind when we first went to West Bengal. She was just saying we were there. And that was in the mid-70s. And we met these balls. Oh, yeah. And, okay, they're not smokers, but, man, these guys are incredible. You want to tell them something about the balls? Well, in the former days, they used to travel from... Uh, Raja's palaces to other kings' palaces and perform there. And they would uh, recite the Holy, holy the Mahabharata or what's the other one? Anyway, they would kind of sing it. And I saw one of these guys, he had a huge robe and he would slowly unroll it while he was singing. And he had a little kid there on the drum and another little kid on one of these harmoniums. And then slowly they would unroll and you would get the whole story. But these sessions would take like a couple of days sometimes. And they just travel for uh, and make music and tell the old stories. And unfortunately, when we saw them, they were already reduced to going village to village to, you know, people who were still entertained. From fair, from fair to fair. Yeah, by things like that. Luckily, afterwards, there was, a, there was an uprise of, of awareness because these guys, many of them couldn't actually read or write. You know, it's all memorized, all these stories. And that kind of knowledge you can only pass on in one way, you know. And... But India is aware of the balls, the balls of Bengal. So this was a particularly Indian and a tribal, and a, but no smoking going on that I know. Oh, I'm sure they did. Yeah, but yeah. I wasn't smoking in those days. I was only mm. 11, 12. I'd already quit. <laughs> <laughs> um. Is there any other maybe um, uh, things that you guys had a chance to kind of experience when it came, comes to traditional hash making that you think might be um, good knowledge for people to be aware of that are kind of getting into it now? Uh, I know, uh, I, uh, you, you know, again, um, there's so much nuance with a lot of that stuff you were just talking about, you know, the, how aged it was compared to now and some of the other things. Is there anything else that kind of you can uh, um, impart on people that, you know, was stuff that maybe kind of got lost in some of the more... Uh, uh, you know, in the, the newer wave of stuff that kind of we could still, you know, really uh, learn from when it comes to the traditional hash making methods? Well, the sadhus, of course, they smoke for their love of Shiva, their God. And it's a way to... Uh, oh, yeah, but also to get closer to them and uh, unite with them. Yeah, they see it more as a spiritual drug than anything else. So do you yes. want to tell us a little bit about, um, uh, you kind of explained the inception of um, the pollinator but uh, and your stuff, but do you want to tell us a little bit more about um, 
you know, kind of how this all came to be uh, uh, what it is now. Um, and if anyone that's out there listening to this in audio format, uh, her website is pollinator.nl. Uh, if you want to, uh, again, if you're not watching the video, uh, if you do want to check out her website, she has a wonderful selection of both uh, uh, water hash separation bags, as well as um, uh, the different mechanical methods for that and, uh, and uh, uh, um, dry sift uh, as well. A uh, wonderful separator machine uh, for getting your, uh, creating either one of those. Yeah. 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 And you can get my book through there. Just go to the web shop. And uh, I think nowadays you can pay all kinds of methods, PayPal, Stripe, you name it. You but can... not just her book. Actually, the book section is well worth checking out. When she had the old shop, there was an incredible collection of books. There, and slowly they're getting a little bit smaller, but there's still stuff on offer that's uh, hard to find sometimes. And our most uh, recent book is this book about Afghanistan. It's called, uh, what's it called, Galaxy? Afghanistan Fortress of Cannabis. And it has some amazing pictures in there. Yeah, it won't be on this list it yet. Is. Yeah, it's Sorry. here. Is it? Yeah. Where? Uh, next, further down. Oh, okay. Yeah, it'll be down. Well, that's really... down because it's a lot of books on there. <laughs> well, this is a wonderful resource for people. There's even one on uh, uh, HIV. Again, that's... Yeah, how all of uh, all of us got legal cannabis in the United States. Anyone that knew Dennis Perone and and Wayne Justman and all those wonderful people that fought the good fight down in San Francisco. Uh, Wayne's still one of my my favorite people to talk to on the phone. Uh, here it is, Afghanistan. That's yeah, of cannabis. Wow. And the amazing thing is, yeah, he's just so happy. He's going to do all that stuff in the front there on that little screen he's holding in his hand. And he's just happy there's a picture with this huge grin. But there's all kind of pictures of how the plants are growing there. And the text is very interesting. I like it a lot. But then I also like Afghanistan a lot. When we first arrived there, we were so welcomed. And uh, this was long before the Russians or the Americans were there. This was in 68. And it was uh, one of the most beautiful countries. And even though then, well, physically maybe not, it's pretty desert-like. <laughs> but uh, the people were wonderful. Even though a lot of people were wearing, walking around with rifles and stuff, it never felt. I never felt threatened. It was in the end. It became like over here they wear a rucksack or a briefcase, and over here they wear it over there. But I never, yeah. I don't know, there wasn't a common enemy at that time and people welcomed us. I always felt it was because we joined them sitting, standing around the hubbly bubbly. <laughs> that is their way of smoking. The beauty with this book is that it was the photographs are from 2018, I believe. Uh, it was a Frenchman who went over there. And I, yeah, if you, have a, if you have a camera and you've got a good eye, we got some beautiful stuff in there. Unfortunately, we don't have them all on the website, the pictures. <laughs> anyway, there's many other good books on there. Yes, <laughs> this is just the latest edition. 
And if you want to get her book as well, it's also up on Amazon. Uh, yeah. If you're just an Amazon person, I know a lot of people get most some of their stuff that way as well. Want to make sure I recommend getting it through her site because then you can just type in the comment box. I'd like to get it autographed, and you get an autographed copy like I did, man. Now I had it. Now it's one of my prized go. possessions. That's the only way you can get it autographed if you get it through the Pollinator web shop. There you go. I'll hear about it, then I'll sign I stand it. Stand corrected. Definitely the better way to get it. Yeah. She's got all kinds of other wonderful things too. You have uh, 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 water hash machines. Yeah. Uh, the washing machine is also really something. I don't think a man could ever have thought of that, that the washing machine would be any use at making hash. But the thing is that it was developed to get dirty socks clean. So it's a very thorough machines. And if the water is icy cold that's in there and you put in your material, that machine will wash off them crystals like anything. <laughs> it's amazing. <laughs> it took her a few years, but I, I figured it was a natural progression, you know? First she's standing in front of her dryer. Before you know it, we're gonna use and whatever else you've And then we house, made right? the bags, and then uh, we made the uh, washing machines that came last. Yeah, the bags came right after the pollinator. But they're all good. Uh, that one we're still working at. It's still coming soon. <laughs> it's an old model that we're trying to re But those are all the pollinators, and then you can get an extra drum. So you can like fill it with the material and put it in the freezer. So when you take the other one out, you can just keep on going. So that helps the process. Yeah, and lately people are getting drums in different sizes, different screen sizes. I thought that was quite clever too. All the pretty colors were all mesmerized. <laughs> I'm sorry, I didn't realize my mic was muted. I'm talking to myself. Uh, do you find that there's a big difference between the different trichome head sizes? I know uh, one of my favorite things, especially if I'm trying to figure out between the last three or four strains that I'm going to submit for a, a, a competition, I'll take some of that bud and wash it and get the different trichome head sizes and then press them and then try each of those different things so I can understand the, the different layers of maturity. Or if I'm working in a commercial operation, trying to understand exactly when I need to harvest that plant, being able to kind of stretch that timeline out by having that those that ripeness profile and that, yeah. that timeline of, of ripeness really I find is the best way to kind of figure out exactly when I need to harvest on a, if it's an unknown strain. Um, what do you find is kind of the biggest differences or, or do you have a particular favorite trichome head size that you really like uh, for your hash? Or do you find that more like uh, the 45 through 120 is the, the best or what, what is your preference? Well, for me, the bigger, the better for the trichomes. Just because each trichome, be it small or big, has a thin layer of cellulose around it. And if you just draw it out on a piece of paper, if you get a bunch of big crystals and then a bunch of little ones, the percentage of oil in the bigger crystals is much larger. So that's what I prefer. <laughs> and she's a stoner. So as it ripens and it gets darker, that kind of deepens the... Effective no, I well. don't let it get dark on the plant. 
Well, no, you don't cut it white, though. No. Uh, something else I wanted to ask you about. So, but uh, you talked a little bit earlier about the different colors coming from different regions. Was there a lot of purple uh, cannabis um, that, that you saw traveling around or purple, any of the, the anthocyanin heavy hash or anything like that, that you see kind of occasionally now on the market? Not in, in Asia at that time, no, no. Huh, that's interesting. Nowadays, you can't really say anymore because that's a thing that I don't like about all this traveling, that people tend to take seeds along with them. So you come to an area where for hundreds of years, it's just that one kind that's happy growing there and it's adjusted. And then you bring in something else and they tend to forget the bee wind blown or whatever they're going to plant there. If it's an OG or a cookie or whatever, it's going to influence the original land race. And the last this is happening in Thailand, all over the Himalayas, Nepal, and in South America also very sad. Yeah, the only place I think I've seen stuff that looked any kind of, at least in my opinion, looked kind of natural or and had those long finishing times left was when I was in Zimbabwe because they've been so racked by war and other things that they really haven't had a lot of import of, you know, yeah. Western cultivars or export for sale either. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah exactly. I think that's why Afghanistan is one of the last strongholds because nobody's could ever bring seeds there and nobody will be going there for a bit also. Yeah. yeah. No, you're absolutely right. It's been basically uh, in conflict since the, you know, the 70s. And that really is might be one of the last places I, I couldn't agree more. It's probably one of the best preservations of genetics for the wrong reasons. But, you know, <laughs> yeah, and then you have uh, Kazakhstan. The last what is growing there isn't classified as fantastic from Western viewpoint. But they have a million two hundred thousand hectares of wild marijuana growing there which is quite amazing to be driving through there. And you're driving on a track and driving on that track, you're having to knock down two, three meter big plants because nobody has ever been on that track <laughs> since the year before. It's just such a huge country. It's uh, quite spectacular. Yeah. Wild. I can't even fathom that. That's, that's <laughs> get the charis off the front of the truck, you know? <laughs> <laughs> Put a big thing of wax paper on the front and just drive through. <laughs> uh, they always tell me to come back in the end of October. Then I just have to bring a, a bring a vacuum cleaner and just suck it up from the soil. <laughs> <laughs> is there any um, uh, is there anything in particular about certain um, microclimates or things you've experienced? So many different terroirs, and and you were just talking about how. How much different the different environments were in terms of the flavor and the experience of the, the plants? Is there a particular one? You've talked about high altitude valleys being a, a particularly uh, valuable one. Is there any other environments that you found are particularly, um, um, you know, good for cannabis or cultivation or cannabis production? Uh, a country like Colombia seems built for it. I mean, they have 12 hours of sunlight the whole year round. <laughs> which is an advantage <laughs> that you don't get very often uh, in India what's very clear is that it's a weed and it loves to grow anywhere it gets a chance and it just grows differently and, you know the, the more chances it gets the better it does you know, any encouragement it'll, it'll bloom to it but 
Yeah, it just grows everywhere there, it used to. We had uh, someone from Europe uh, in chat asking, uh, what's the best strain to grow in Holland or similar type climates in Europe uh, for outdoor? Do you have any ones uh, that you know grow particularly well uh, in that region? I'll let, uh, you know, supposedly. Outdoor in Holland isn't really worth it. The thing is that nationally, the 12 hours of daylight start counting from the 4th of September. So even if you're just having eight weeks, you're already at the beginning of November. Now, everybody having ever been in Holland knows that from the middle of October, the weather is fucked. Daylight is getting shorter and shorter. The sun is lower and lower. The rain, the mist increases no end. And so you're having to harvest it, if you're lucky, around the 7th of October or something. But it's only halfway there. <laughs> So that's a bad thing about growing outdoors in Holland. And uh, people are using this, what's it called? It starts flowering immediately. Autoflower. But my experience, well, I don't know about autoflower so much, but I know from this feminized seed, somehow you can never make a really nice piece of hash. I don't know what it is. You press it up and it looks good. And the next morning it's powder again. And I don't know if you guys experience anything like that. Or you press it and it dries out right away? Well, I don't know if you ever press it. You would never be pressing feminized seeds. You don't work with feminized seeds. Yeah, but you don't have so much experience. Yeah, I don't. Me personally, I try to avoid feminized seeds just because I find yeah, okay. that in the okay, commercial good. space, they That's have a good. higher chance of, of hermaphroditing and stuff like that. And I'm, I just don't want to deal with that. Um, so... No, that's good, good, because apparently, well, I haven't personally had much experience, but several other people who I greatly respect, and they say it doesn't work. You know, you can press it and it look beautiful and sticky and everything, and the next morning it's just powder, and you well, can't get it stick. I think it also matters, too. I think greasier strains seem to dry out more. They have more of those alcohol-bonded cannabinoids that, that are more... Uh, capable of evaporating and breaking down quickly versus uh, a lot of the other ones. And then also too, how much water you give them through flour. I think that's one of the reasons why places like Afghanistan and some of those higher altitude valleys are so uh, successful is that, you know, once they, they water them up until maybe they they get maybe one or two waterings and there's enough groundwater there to kind of keep them going or, uh, you know, they, they don't water them very much going into flour just let them kind of desiccate and dry out before harvest which is something I've talked to a lot of people about. And you correct me if I'm wrong on that. Yeah, there's one area in Afghanistan where it just apparently rains one time a year, really good. Everybody runs out and sows. And then that's it. And then they wait till it's uh, dried out for harvest, I guess. But, but also marijuana can go very deep for water. We even tested it in Kazakhstan. And... Uh, there's still real roots at like two and a half, three meters deep. It goes much deeper than that. So they can uh, source water where other plants can't. Is there any other uh, cultivation tips that you have, maybe aside from, uh, aside from that one that you've learned over the years from some of the people that uh, uh, have been uh, off in the hills or some of the amazing places that you've been? Is there any maybe tips or Ask tricks? Ask her about... Ask her about how she used to visit her grows 
inconspicuously to check and see if they were busted. It's pretty good. <laughs> yeah, at some period here in Amsterdam, I grew a lot. At one point, we had 14 different gardens all over the city. The smallest one was 10 meters and the largest one was over 100 square meters. And there was only a few of us doing it, so we would just run around. And I had everything on the calendar. You know, that day was the harvest, so that three weeks early, you'd have to start making clones. Eight days later, they'd go into vegetating. So at the third week, that'd be perfect because our growings would only flower. And uh, yeah, we had some ingenious techniques. But yeah, it didn't always go right. And uh, <laughs> one was funny that was right. We had one in a kind of cellar situation under one of the bridges in the center of Amsterdam. And well, that was okay. We used to go down there and we only had 20 square meters there, but it was nice. And uh, <laughs> nobody really bothered us until it started snowing. And I arrived there and the whole city was white, except <laughs> there, right above where those 20 lamps were hanging, at least two meters below street level, because you have to go down, down, down to get there. All the snow was melted. So, oh man, I ran down anyway. I thought, well, I'll just do what I have to do. And, uh, do it as fast as possible, and I did. And thank goodness, by the time I got up, the whole city had melted again and everything looked normal. But that was pretty weird. And other times, yeah, like our biggest grow was getting busted, but I always wanted to see what was going on. So yeah, I'd put leaks into a shopping bag and be a hard, and I immediately became a housewife with a shopping bag with leaks in it and not worthy a second glance at all. So I could kind of look and see what was all going on. Oh, that grow room is getting emptied. <laughs> yeah, yeah, but that worked because uh, a housewife is not interesting in those kind of cases at all. I wonder what it was specifically about leeks that made you uninteresting. Are leeks the most uninteresting vegetable or what? Could it have been Brussels yeah. sprouts? Or <laughs> You know, if you're carrying leeks in a normal shakari bag, they'll stick out. I can have the whole bag filled with potatoes and spinach and God knows what, but nobody would see it. But leeks stick out, so that's vegetables right there. There we go. Asparagus, maybe an eggplant. Yeah. It have to be a pretty big eggplant. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. We have big shopping bags here. Yeah, no, for me, leeks was perfect. You get about this much that stuff out over the shopping bag so that was good enough for me <laughs> uh here in the u.s they don't sell carrots with the fancy with the the lettuce attached or with the green stuff attached but i think in europe they still have all the green stuff in our cartoons you know bugs bunny is always chewing a, a carrot it still has the green stuff on it i'm just visualizing you carrying like a bag with carrots with all the green you know carrot material out and leeks and stuff. check it out on weed <laughs> you can sometimes get them uh, with the greens on it here, especially uh, on markets and places. But the leeks also, they don't have all the green on it, but about half your leek is white and half of it's green, so enough of it sticks up. Yeah, but carrots would have been good. <laughs>
One of those bugs basically was just checking if uh, checking on his guard. <laughs> What's up, Doc? <laughs> well, if Potent's away, maybe I'll ask a question. Uh, Mila, do you think uh, uh, aging will become a, a part of uh, hash and uh, weed culture, like a significant part? Will, for example, in bourbon, in even beer now, they have bourbon barrel aged this and bourbon barrel aged that, and it's just for beer. Do you think people will be doing that kind of stuff for hash anytime soon? I don't know. I don't like it too, too old at all. Actually, I like it quite uh, once it's made. The crystals shouldn't be harvested when they were still white, but then, yeah, just normal suits me fine. <laughs> now, whereas I much prefer it. I managed to age it a bit myself. And also I've had in India, I've managed to smoke uh, charas. Yeah. Up in the mountains yeah. that they had for eight years, for 10 years, they had dabas full of it. And they'd pull out and give me a few little bits to try. And it makes a big difference. Now, what I'm hoping for is that you guys, with your widening market and everything, that the excitement right now is all the dabbing and all the different extracts. And, but it'd be really nice if it became more rounded and that there is weed there for those who want it, that there is hash there for those who want it, as well as all the extracts and all the other stuff. I've, I've seen that in several of the dispensaries I went to. They do have some. Yeah, yeah, yeah I know there yeah. are some. There just need to be a few more. And it's too... I don't know. It seemed to be an every dispensary I more or less went to. Okay. Yeah, yeah some, some states do still have some issues with getting like rosin and bubble hash because of their different uh, uh, permitting and production restrictions and things like that. But it is expanding quite a bit more. Um, do you have any advice for people as an expert in, in water hash separation? Um, a lot of people sometimes struggle with that or don't understand why they're not getting the numbers that they expect. Do you have any advice on, on or maybe don't get the flavor that they, they think maybe it comes out not quite as good? Um, is there anything, uh, common mistakes you, you think that people do with ice hash separation that maybe you can kind of uh, prevent people from experiencing? or, or uh, the main things is the temperature of the water. And people may be putting plenty of ice at the beginning, but don't add more when that ice is starting to get melted. So you're always having to add more to maintain to maintain the, the temperature. Yeah. yeah, I think that's a main mistake I seem to hear. And uh, yeah, sometimes wanting to turn it for hours, like, uh, you know, then you're just kind of greedy and want to lop. I mean, the first uh, five or 10 minutes uh, for me is the best. It's, uh, or even no, the first half question. hour, but, um, but yeah, anyway, yeah, it's up to everybody's taste. And yeah, if you want to sell it, maybe you want to make it into more. But yeah, like I said, you're just adding what you actually don't want in there. <laughs> or you're leaving it in there. <laughs> there any advice for uh, you have for people to picking strains that will be better for sifting and, and washing versus strains that are, are, aren't going to yield as well? Uh, have you found any particular traits? Obviously, you're looking for a grainier, more sandier feel on the trichome head, but is there any other uh, things that you look for when you're trying to determine whether or not a plant's going to be a good uh, a choice for that uh, uh, beyond just testing it? The test is to smoke it. To try it. Yeah, that's the only real test. Uh, things can look and smell great and then 
The other one that didn't look and smell so great turns out to be much more what you like. I don't know, it's very difficult. And also every time I come to the States now, I get overwhelmed by the amount of new varieties and there are, and uh, you know, I haven't figured out yet what they all really mean and what they all, and whether I, I like cookies better than OG or whatever, because uh, we don't have those choices here. <laughs> Not very much, no. And also over here, extracts are illegal. So coffee shops to keep their license safe also don't sell rosin or ice hash too much. Many of them don't. Yeah, so I don't know. I think uh, over here we have far less freedoms at this moment than you guys over there. You, you know, people can grow here. You can't grow. It's totally illegal. And their methods of finding you are getting better and better. I'm glad I had all my gardens in the early 90s. <laughs> but uh, nowadays, uh, yeah, no. And the whole attitude toward weed and, and, and our smokers is uh, not positive. Will that change over time? I mean, we hear uh, these days anyway, we hear maybe optimistically that Germany, uh, what was it, Luxembourg or, or Liechtenstein, I can't remember which one, uh, just uh, legalized or is legalizing. Several other countries are in the process. Like, is there any positive movement, do you think, or are you guys somewhat pessimistic in the near future? Yeah, for this country, I'm pretty pessimistic. But yeah. on the other hand, it's Holland. <laughs> they are Dutch and they like their money. And if the neighbors all start making all the money, they're going to want a piece of it. Yeah, I don't know. You know? That's the only reason why everybody thinks that this is such an amazing place is because they, they think everything's okay here. No, it's tolerated here. It's and the only go. reason it's tolerated is because all these coffee shops pay taxes, lots of taxes. So then they put up with it. You know, but they don't make their lives easy. It's not encouraged. It's still no, illegal I, for them I, I, to I, buy the brats that they're selling. <laughs> yes. Yes, it's very hypocritical over here. I don't know. And looking at our prime minister, I don't think it's going to change soon either. <laughs> we somehow have gone very good at choosing the wrong person. I was just going to say, do you think, uh, I mean, was it better, uh, maybe not necessarily in terms of cultivation, but I mean, were laws more lax back in the 90s and early 2000s than they are now? Has it really gone much more restrictive here in the last 10 or 20 years? I have for in my small museum, I cut out uh, newspaper headlines in the early 90s, late 80s, where cops suggest that marijuana should be legalized, where parts of the government are sure that... Uh, it should be legalized and, and that uh, it was a historic mistake to classify it as a drug, uh, many things like that. And it wasn't until the newspaper, oh yeah, you could claim, if you had a guard dog, you could claim that as a cost of deducted from your profit <laughs> as well as your car. But uh, then in 94, they put a stop to that and you couldn't uh, just take everything off, but you could still put it on your tax form that you were growing. But that stopped very soon after that. Very soon. 
and people just, uh, yeah. No, at the moment, I don't have much hope over here. But it's very good. You get uh, incognito, and for sure, there's some friends making some great stuff. It isn't all bad. <laughs> I have to look up the actual facts on it sometime, but I know that in that period, the Dutch customs and excise took the taxman to court because they suddenly realized the taxman was taking money from coffee shops and the on their tax return, it would say we made, uh, we sold 2,000 guilders worth of tea and we sold 5,000 guilders of coffee and we sold 45,000 and it was all written there. And customs excisers said, well, but we're standing here busting our balls trying to stop this stuff from coming in and tell us about it. You know what, <laughs> this is going on. And there was a proper court case. I have to find the, the, the name and the number of some time because that's hilarious. Only in Holland. <laughs> yeah, they just hadn't filled in. They were selling weed. They just made up a story about tea and coffee. And... Yeah, no, they were saying in those days. Yeah. Yeah, it's crazy stuff. Like you said, just before they changed it. It's funny how important the, the tax situation is for weed because we hear all these stories in California now about how the legal market in California is being strangled to death essentially ostensibly by taxes. All, all the producers, the legal producers are saying that they cannot possibly compete with the illegal market because their taxes are literally so high that their business expenses essentially outweigh any profits they could possibly uh, make. Uh, how do I say? Uh, they're saying basically the tax the taxation is so high that it's going to crush the entire industry. So that's kind of interesting that you say. On the other hand, the only reason that the industry is tolerated at all in Holland is because there's some taxes on it. Yeah, over here, whatever, a coffee shop, mind you, so the growers never pay taxes because what they're mm. doing is illegal. But what the coffee shops sell, anything they sell over 50,000 euros worth, it's 50% tax. So let's say you made 2 million. So you're paying a million just about on taxes right there and that's just the local taxes now you still get income taxes the local taxes is always 21 yeah. percent it's the wrong way around yeah. and the income tax yeah that's standard for everything so that goes off first for local taxes and then at the end of the year anything over fifty thousand, it's 50 percent taxes you pay half for you and half <laughs> um, that is uh, way worse than most places uh, in the United States, that's for sure. Uh, yeah. Here in, in, uh, in the States, they're just not used to paying taxes. Over mm -hmm. here, they've been at it forever. They felt well trained. They've thoroughly done a good job at strangling the living crap out of the market in multiple states. Illinois is horrible like that as well. They also limited how much out of state people can purchase. So they can't even make it up in sales volume. You know, they, they really crippled them in both ways. So there's a lot yeah. of really idiotic ideas. What always was ironic to me was Nevada and California legalized rec roughly around the same time. And Nevada made double the tax revenue that California did. And they have like, what, a quarter of the population or something like that, like not even a uh, fifth of the population. And they made double the tax revenue and had a lower tax rate. So it was like, yeah. Well, yeah, there's a sane way to do this and a wrong way to do this. I've, uh, I uh, practically only know growers on the black in California. Most of the people seem to do that. The 
because um, yeah, it doesn't pay otherwise. Yeah, quality still sells. You know, even out here in Oklahoma in a super flooded market where you can get thirty-five dollar ounces um, at a store, uh, you you know, quality stuff still gets a nice nice price for the breeders. That, but it has to be nice, you know, organic, living soil grown or or something comparable uh, in order to get those prices. But you know, the people that actually do take the time and the care to, to care about their plants or dim pure certified or some of the other different organic certifications that are out there that are kind of, um, you know, and that's what the US has had to do as well. They don't have or recognize organic production of cannabis yet federally. So they, they have to create their own little certifications to separate themselves from the market. And um, it really is kind of allowed for people to kind of uh, mirror some of the different, uh, you know, wine uh, markets and some of the other things that kind of develop their own methods for, for quality. But it must also be difficult, very difficult in one country to have so many different systems. At least oh, in yeah. country, it's the same. <laughs> yeah, but it's the whole country is the size of one state. <laughs> a lot smaller than most of them. Right. I would imagine that's a little bit different too from like a, 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 the point of as, as a, a distributor, like, you know, in the US, if your one market's kind of bad, you just go to a different market. Whereas, uh, you know, you're, you're, everyone's kind of in the same pool there. Or I can see it being a little bit more cutthroat when it comes to the, the distribution. <laughs> Is there any other, uh, uh, I know, I mean, I read a little bit of your book uh, uh, over the last couple of days doing research for this. You have so many interesting stories about different uh, things from moving various things from point A to point B. Do you have any uh, stories you want to share with us uh, uh, that are uh, memorable? Or you had so many good ones uh, that I, I read uh, just doing research for this. Well, what I was to always think is a nice story, which is not part of the old uh, uh, east side. I was in Colombia, and then well, the thing is, I I give Davidu parties, and they're hash parties basically. And I've been doing it 2013. That was just going to be a one-time affair for my 69th birthday, but everybody liked it so much. Four months later, we had one in Barcelona, and now we've already had 28 of them, and quite a number of them have been in South America. And we did one in Colombia. Uh, they got a helicopter to take me to the location on top of the mountain. And that was just fantastic. I'd never been in a helicopter before, so that was really something. <laughs> but that was a safe journey. Then she went to Mexico. No, I haven't gotten that far yet. The nice thing about the helicopter was that they'd rented it for the whole day. So that nearly everybody that came to that Davidu actually went up for a few minutes and had a toke or a dab and came down again. So that was really very memorable. And there I met this Mexican guy, uh, Melo, and he said, oh yeah, I wanna do a Davidu in Mexico. I said, well, you see what we do? We're a couple of hundred people. We smoke hash, rosin, everything like that. And if you know a place we can do that without any problem, we'll do it. And four months later, he'd rented the top of a mountain where there was an extreme sports center. Yeah, nobody bothered to come up there and see what was going on. And you could go paragliding from there, and I did. That was really something. I was quite scared, though. <laughs> I really have to tell myself, look, people do this for fun. And you can be up in the air and just be scared the whole time. 
but just switch your mind around and try and enjoy it. Well, I did my best. Uh, 10 minutes later, the guy said, oh, you know, if you want, we can get one of these circular movements and go back up again. I said, no, no, no. We'll That's just terrible. slowly continue further down. But it was really something. And at some moments, I could feel like an eagle just floating through that sky. It was really spectacular. That's the one thing that you have on YouTube. You actually put it all on there. <laughs> no, but okay, so Mexico was amazing, but he picks you up. Tell him when they picks you up for the first time at the airport. <laughs> well, first place, they were nearly two hours late. So I was around on the, on the Guadalajara airport, and finally they showed up, and they showed up in this battered old Volkswagen van. And there was four or five of them. And their hair was long and matted, and the tattoos were visible. Anyway, we all said hi, hugs, and off we went off down the road. And uh, within around five kilometers after, there was some cops. Yeah, that's me flying. <laughs> <laughs> I'm doing my best to enjoy it. <laughs> anyway, those cops. Talk to my five guys in a very unfriendly tone of voice. I don't speak Spanish, but I didn't need to. And then I suddenly thought, I know I don't have anything on me, but God knows what these guys have got in this van. So in the end, I decided to get out the van and immediately all the cops stood there with their guns alert pointed at me. And I said, look, I'm a tourist. I come to Mexico for the first time. Can I have a photograph with you? <laughs> and that just changed everything. <laughs> and they stand there smiling next to me with their guns, all thoughts of checking our van, totally gone, and we could get off easily. So that was, uh, phew, that was good. I still That's brilliant. I'm waiting to get my hands on it. That's priceless because there was stuff in the car. I asked the boys. <laughs> I'm sure there was. Yeah, this was pretty impressive. Their whole Mexico. Yeah, that's awesome. Uh, so, uh, what do you like, or what's your favorite hash? Or, or you know, you talked about how important it is to the different regions in, in South America and Central America. Where, where have you found really has kind of the the nicer hash? Oh, that makes some very good hash down there. That's for sure. Uh, I must say they're all very fond of growing American strains nowadays. I see it at the Davidus I have down there. It's difficult to find a good Punto Rojo still, but it's available. Uh, they're far more influenced in their smoking culture by America than we Europeans were, are. Everybody dabs there and lots of people are growing and making ash and making extracts and rosin and diamonds and whatever. So I like it there. I like the people there. Uh, yeah, we had some funny parties down there. <laughs> then in Colombia one other year, uh, this guy, uh, he got us an island to have the Dabadu on. Well, it took two hours in the, beyond the horizon to get to it in the speedboat. But that was also just magic. I like that about these uh, 
Dabadoos in different countries in Europe, somehow they always end up being indoors because the weather is cold or whatever. But there, they're often outdoor. It often takes quite a while to get to the location. So usually it's a two-day affair, sometimes even a three-day affair. And that kind of changes things around. You have bonfires at night, <laughs> some local music. Yeah, it's uh, different in Mexico. We usually have it around the Day of the Dead, which is uh, an amazing uh, um, custom they have there to really think about their dead. And I think over here, we never do that. Okay, sure, I will think about my dead parents and that like that, but not the way they do. They go to the grave, bring a picnic along, dress the whole grave in flowers and candles and sit there all night. It's just a terrific uh, customer experience to keep the family so alive for them. We don't have that ex uh, tradition at all, which is a bit of a pity. <laughs> Any, uh, uh, I don't, I don't know how much longer you have uh, available at time, uh, um, uh, but is there any other things that you wanted to kind of uh, uh, tell people maybe in the West about some of the earliest days and uh, the earlier days in hash making versus now, or anything else that kind of you think that more modern hash makers need to kind of know or understand that maybe it's kind of getting lost in the noise of the the constant, uh, uh, you know, distress everyone is feeling uh, in the U.S. market at least at the moment. Well, I like the Afghan way of making the hash, of making this uh, ball of crystals in this, uh, nowadays it's a uh, thick plastic outside and then hitting with a mallet in that factual fact, I had a girlfriend and she traveled the world with her own mallet and she was truly an expert. After five minutes, she would know. Some hashes take like 200 beats to turn to this beautiful, sticky, shiny hash others 400 and uh, she really had it down she knew it that was fantastic when you uh, hit that ball with a mallet you keep twisting it so you never hit the same spot twice you keep twisting the ball and just hitting with a mallet and uh, after about five or ten minutes the whole thing will get hot and soft like squeezable uh, you have to let it cool off and do it again. You have to do that a few times before the hash is really ready. But you're breaking up the uh, cellulose walls around the crystals and uh, we all come. at the same time. Yeah, and it's coming out of the crystals. It's um, kind of with uh, rosin, you're also just getting the oil and all those bits of cellulose stay behind. That's the idea of it anyway. Yeah. Wonderful. Um, uh, if uh, anyone wants to learn more, they can um, uh, check out her website over at pollinator.nl. Um, yeah. And uh, she has a whole bunch of awesome stuff for hash making from uh, uh, dry sift separators, water hash washers, books, uh, all kinds of wonderful things on her website. Um, your Instagram is um, uh, Mila Hash Queen. Uh, you can check out her over there as well uh, if you want to follow her and uh, all the wonderful things that she's doing and posting over there. And um, 
uh yeah um fumi or uh west did you guys have anything else you wanted to add here uh, before we wrap up you know i was curious we've actually been uh, asking kind of a fun question on my show uh, lately and it's it's sort of uh, at least in my mind it's taken off because it's just kind of a fun thing to think uh mila uh, or actually both of you mila and milos if you could pick anybody in the history of the entire world uh even maybe somebody made up to smoke with uh who would you smoke with and what would you smoke with them so, for example, I said one time, like, Alexander, and then I actually changed my mind. I would actually probably do, like, maybe Leonardo da Vinci, uh, Leonardo da Vinci, maybe, and I would probably smoke some weed with him, basically. I think it would blow his mind, or Michelangelo, you know? What about you? This was Frenchy, but then Frenchy is not in the past, so I agree with da Vinci. I would also like maybe to smoke with someone like Bach. Ah, that'd be a good one. Uh, let me think. Yeah, along those lines, there's actually quite a lot. It'd be very interesting to smoke with someone like Einstein, for instance, or what's his, I always really appreciated what he was talking. He was always a wheelchair. Oh, Stephen Hawking. Yeah. I think he actually smoked a lot of weed when he was young uh, at Cambridge. I think I remember hearing that he smoked a lot of weed. Yeah, yeah that would be a person to share these experiences with. Maybe when he was younger, yeah, then he would be. Right. Yeah. That's cool. Milos, what about you? Do you have anybody? Hmm. I don't know. I know they have in uh, Persia or what is Iran nowadays, they used to have poets that would write about their hash experiences. Um, Rumi or somebody. Yeah, Rumi. Yeah. There you go. Right on. Well, yeah. cheers. Yeah. Or even just to smoke with somebody like uh, practically mythical Baba Ku. You know, some of these early crazy yeah. Babas. Uh, Af- Afghani. Uh, Baba who supposedly started off the whole national. Hmm. Yeah. <laughs> and gave certain seeds to certain families and everything. Uh, they were supposed to protect them. That's why Or get really high with the Hashashans. The, what are they? Assassins? <laughs> and learn how to, I don't know. That's in a bit of a rowdy bunch. I don't know. <laughs> right. But somehow I imagine uh, Alexander you know, definitely Interesting there. conversations at least, right? I would think. Right. I, uh, you smoke with some of the old guys traveling the Silk Route. Because mm. along the Silk Route is where you find hash seeds from beginning to mm. end. Because all the camel drivers would be smoking and they'd pick their dried plants along the way and spill the seeds. And so there's like a whole route. Yeah, well, they're throwing the seeds away as they're finding them. As they're oh. finding them. So <laughs> they're just sprouting all along the, the old Silk Route. Or, yeah. I think I would pick a different Alexander. I think I would pick Alexander Shulgin, just because of the impact uh, that he's had on my life. So probably I'd get uh, uh, swapped into uh, taking some of his stuff. Yeah, right. <laughs> That's part two. <laughs> it's funny. I opened my uh, store in Amsterdam. In those days, they were still legal. And I've always kept my old accounting books where it says, uh, what did you have in those days? CB, 
two and you had different, different uh, things that you could get. And I just have them on my uh, account book as well as mushrooms. There was nothing legal in those days. So that'd be on my account book also. So that's kind of funny because all those things are not possible anymore. Yeah, and well, what's funny is those are coming legal again in the States as well. I mean, Oregon is gonna have a fully licensed uh, system in the next 24 months uh, for production and processing and retail. Uh, Canada's opening up on this and you have tons of different psychedelic research uh, companies right now launching IPOs and all kinds of you know laboratories across the United States right now. They're also starting to use it medically now for depressions and all those kind of things. Uh, yeah, I know uh, quite a few veterans that have been uh, healed up quite a bit by the, the stuff the U.S. government's done to them by L uh, MDMA because uh, it really does help people with PTSD and things like that. So it's certainly something that needs to be, especially for people that have been damaged by the government, they need to do everything they can to fix those guys. Yeah. Now that's a good uh, move and I hope there's no real talk of that over on this side. I mean, it's never stopped since the 60s. There's always been a possibility if you really need want to look around long enough, you'll find someone to give you or help you through a session of that. But I think in America and all these things, they're far ahead and, and they're openness with the many things. Though I get confused by all these different rules in all the different states. That must be hard to <laughs> work around. But I, love, I mean, out of all these states that have all legalized, at the end of the day, why? Money. It's the same in Thailand, Thailand, where we had the death penalty until not so long ago. Now they are encouraging people. They're they're starting to push it that you know, I mean, hey, make some more money, grow some of this and give it to us, and we'll sell it. You know, it's like unbelievable what you're hearing. And all these places are doing it for financial reasons. Not that I can't think of a single state that is doing it because because a kid has stopped having epileptic seizures. Yeah. Nice. Magical mushroom luchador in, in Vancouver. I thought that was funny. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, I don't want to take up uh, your whole evening, and I'm sure you have uh, other things to do. I know it's getting a little bit late there in, uh, in Amsterdam, but uh, I very much appreciate uh, having you on. If you want to hang out for a little bit longer, we're happy to ask you more questions, but I I figured I, I didn't want to take up your whole night if you did need to go. Questions, I'm happy to answer them. I'm just going to be sitting here. It's my home, so I'm not <laughs> going anywhere after this. Okay. Well, we're happy to have you a little longer then. Uh, uh, Wes, did you have, uh, having just gone through her book, did you have any more questions? I know that you have a, uh, a much more uh, in-depth, because I, I hadn't... I, you know, I honestly don't know where I want to start, but uh, I guess... Uh, with uh okay with your try with your journeys uh with your journeys up into the thing i noticed when you returned the second time and saw the modernization of uh india and the people turning away from the local customs the construction changing and all that i noticed that really 
brought you down, but you didn't go very much into it in the book. And I was very surprised in that because I could tell that it was that it was weighing on you quite a bit. Well, that they just fall in love with the concrete box to live in. The concrete box and the young men falling in love with the Jeeps and the, yeah, the, and the people. And phones and all those things. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. It's just the way it's going. Yeah. I don't think you can really influence it anyway. I mean, all over the world, people now want mobile phones. <laughs> and over there, they're actually quite uh, ahead with it in some ways. You can pay all your bills with the mobile. Well, you can here now also. But you couldn't, you could there long before you could there. Bhutan is still free of all that stuff, isn't it? At least somebody's still mobile free. And... I have no idea. Yeah. Well, Bhutan is what about all the visitors there? I, and I, I thought it was like when you went up the first time and, and serendipitously bumped into the Dalai Lama, who would have been such a memorable experience to everybody there, which actually made them remember you later on when you returned. I thought that was I thought that was really cool how it all just like it, it was like your life was like should have been made into a movie like it really should have been like it, it's such a good story. And like I, I, I think the things that impressed upon me the, the most about you is uh, how you were a strong woman before it was fashionable to be a strong woman. How you were a venturer when when most people just didn't do that. And like I I I I wish I was more like that, honestly. Yeah. I, I mean I have no idea if I just made up my mind to go, I do it just went. <laughs> that's the thing. She just spent all her time being herself. I think that's very important. I think that's what would uh, somebody do in this situation? She'd just deal with it, how she... That's why things like these pollinators and, and stuff like that come about. Because you use whatever you have and you use your brain to come up with different solutions. Well, I think uh, with four kids, you have to learn to think out well, of the <laughs> yeah, I, I think that has a lot to do with it. I do think that has a lot to do with it. Um, yeah, but I, I think you still sell yourself short on it with, with, with the amount of invention. How many people sat there and sieved and made charas the same way and never came up with any different ideas? And you came up with two, three, four of the most amazing ideas that, that changed hash making, revolutionized it, and like really was the, the springboard for a lot of these new people. Uh, what's going on now? And actually, yeah. I'm quite happy that it's evolving and going further in different directions. I wasn't all that keen on this uh, BHO uh, when that was getting made, especially in the beginning. But the rosin and the sauce and the diamonds, I don't know what's it's been going on now. And the machines, incredible machines. Oh, then you look at a machine and it's uh, costing like a quarter of a million. And basically it just does the same <laughs> as what mine does. <laughs> just a much simpler way. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, geez, so there's so many, I have so many questions. Do you still meditate every day? <laughs> no, I must say I don't. 
I you don't, hey? I must admit, not every day. But most of my life, I've been a lazy practitioner. <laughs> Good uh, question from chat. Um, what are common mistakes that you see in hash making or hash handling or hash storage? What I have to say about that? What, what common mistakes do you see that people make in their handling or storing? Yeah, I don't know, know too much about storing. I was more into smoking it. I never really dealt with large quantities and having to store it for any length of time. Um, probably keeping it in a cool, dark place is as good as you can get. Uh, it can be a fridge. Sometimes a freezer is good, but sometimes in the freezer, all the tricones start falling apart. I don't know, I've had that happen. So that's kind of weird. <laughs> Is there any particularly cold then or not? That the trichomes after coming out of the freezer they'd fallen apart. Yeah. I don't Is know. there any um aged or for like so in uh, some parts of Africa they'll they'll put the cannabis in corn cobs and age it underground and things like that. Is there any similar type from you know kind of uh, uh, aging method that you've saw traveling around Asia at all or anything like that? Uh, just these uh, clay jars. Uh, I don't know. I'm sure people have thought of lots of things. <laughs> yeah, this, the collections that I saw, it was already being kept in, in steel containers, steel dabas, but then always stored out, um, like to the houses in, in Manali. Bottom layer is where they keep the animals, and it's a solid stone level, and then the top it builds out, and it's more wood. But down in the bottom, they, they keep it down underground if possible practically you know dark yeah yeah i know my answer okay i i have a i have a question actually what's chime doing now since uh, since you no longer have uh the hotel uh jimmy my youngest son yes well he wasn't ever really working in the hotel no, he yeah, Meryl was the one who was working. Oh, it was Meryl? Okay, sorry, I was confused. He's the one that's now becoming the manager of Pollinator Company. And then okay. with all the accounting and the ins and outs of it. So that was he doing. My youngest son, he became a computational pharmaceutical chemist. He got a PhD oh, wow. on it, which is quite remarkable because he was totally dyslexic as a child. Um, they wanted to fail in first grade primary school three times. <laughs> but he made it in the end. Uh, Meryl's doing okay. Lucy's right here. <laughs> She's fine. Uh, my youngest daughter, she just got her PhD in the sex life of snails. That okay. was about two months ago. Oh, biologist then? Yeah. 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 Sex life of hermaphroditic uh, water snails, yeah. Who uh, and she did that on Purple Friday, which is the uh, day for all the LGBTQ, whatever they're called. I've lost track, there's too many letters. The people aren't sure which sex they are anyway. That that was on the their day that she did, and he said, the professor said, 
that those smells were even far more diverse than we were ever going to get. Luckily, they had some horrendous habits. Yes. <laughs> Stab each other with, yeah. Yeah, with, literally. Yeah. <laughs> First is the male in that particular encounter. <laughs> Too much. <laughs> I never thought we'd talk about that on this episode. <laughs> well, hey, would you imagine you'd ever hear meet somebody who had a PhD in that, you know? That's my sister. <laughs> I'm glad that this world has somebody that st uh, studies the sex life of hermaphroditic uh, water, <laughs> water snails. Correct. <laughs> We have uh, we had another question from chat. Um, what what strains do you or what hash are you smoking recently, or what's your favorite stuff as of late that you like to smoke? Uh, normally, I smoke some rockin that we can get, and I get plenty of gifts of people who made their own water hash or rosin. So. I usually smoke the Moroccan like uh, half of the three quarters of the time, and then a few special joints will happen along the way. Uh, I had a, a question for Milos. Uh, is there any particular events or moments traveling around with your mom that you remember uh, uh, with the learning, you know, seeing the different traditional hash making methods or even just being in the, the culture or any other, you know, crazy moments that were kind of a particularly uh, 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 memorable moments with, with hash or hash making or, you know, just some other funny thing that, that happened to you and your mom traveling around doing all this stuff? Yeah, yeah. She I, used to be the one that was rubbing the plants when she was only a, a little girl. <laughs> yeah, I was four years old the first time we got up to Manali and she was going rubbing with, you know, she was finding out where it was coming from, what you do and everything and so was I. I was getting stuff on my hands, so we'd take it off and smoke it, and it worked, no? So this was... Well, we would be the ones that smoked it in those days. <laughs> yes, they smoked it. Until, of course, we got down to Goa, and they, uh, well, I won't say he was a dear friend of hers. He chased her around with a pitchfork one season, but they, were, they did know each other. He decided to give... Christmas presents to all the kids that this was one of the first Christmas parties we ever had down in Goa. So I was given a miniature soapstone chillum direct from Agra, brought in by this Spanish uh, guy who run off from uh, Europe because uh, we were never quite clear what he was running away from. But he was Brigitte Bardot's bodyguard. So he was built like a Tank, <laughs> like a, you can imagine, Brigitte Bardot's bodyguard joking. And he's moved into the house next to us in Goa with a bunch of French knife throwers. And they used to practice on the coconut tree. So, all us kids, we thought he was great. And at Christmas time, he's given us all gifts, and I get a chillum. So, we do nothing but watch all these guys. So, of course, a few days later or a week later, I don't know when it happened. My mother has come into the, the shack that we were in at that point. We were in one of these um, boat covers. And there's smoke coming from the mattress, from, our, from the bed. We had one of these little turquoise. 
So she's run for the bucket thinking, oh my God, we've set the bed on fire in the morning, didn't even notice, you know, gone to the beach, thrown the bucket of water over the bed and we'd figured out how to use the chillum. Me and my six-year-old girlfriend, who to this day says it was all my doing. But if I had a four-year-old and a six-year-old and they were making chillums, I don't know. Anyway, we got busted. And the next season we went up to Manali. I already knew how to rub the hash. So I probably smoked four chillums of my own, you know, <laughs> heavy smoker. But I gave it up when I was seven. We left, we went to Holland and there was no weeds growing around everywhere where you look. So that was the end of my rubbing career for a while. <laughs> but it was great fun while it lasted. And it actually, it was very useful because then every time we travel backwards and forwards, I came into Holland at 13 and everybody's all cool and going around to the back of the bicycle sheds at school. and smoking cigarette and stuff and my girlfriend drags me around there and I'm like oh wow what'd you put in it and they're like no it's a cigarette and I was like so it, luckily it was never tempting you know it was that that's not interesting but I never smoked cigarettes it saved me from a lifetime of that very bad habit there were a lot of things like that that uh, I really that cracks me up because earlier in the show you you joked and I think you, you joked on my show too that oh you'd already quit at the age of eleven and people always just assume oh that's just a joke right but no actually you had smoked hash when you were a little kid and you'd give it up already because they just didn't have hash in Holland anymore so you had to give it up and, and cigarettes are lame compared to hash I mean come on well, they have to be lame because who do I know that smokes is my mother well when we would be in Holland. There was one shop in the town about half an hour away from where we live where they sold bidis, Indian roll-ups, basically. It's, they take the tobacco leaf, roll it up, and when it dries, it just holds that form. And when we were in Holland, I remember clearly that she smoked bidis sometimes. And you'd have to go all the way there. And that was, oh, and wow, and she'd have her bidi. Not a cigarette, <laughs> you know? So my role model was always something other than, ah, here we go. Let's see, we got a nice BD cigarette. Yeah. It's got to have to be a Ganesh BD. 501s are the best. No little pink label. Oh, man. Wikipedia sucks sometimes. Yeah, there they are. Oh, yeah, yeah. The pink ones. Yes. <laughs> 501s. <laughs> And I never smoked BBs by myself. I never smoked any from the bidin. She's a very good example. You learn all the best things from your mother. We used to empty them out and fill them with hash. Because there was no such thing as rolling papers in those days, huh? People have sometimes asked about that. And nowadays you see sometimes um, for example, uh, some of the Pakistani and Afghani uh, pages where they take just the cigarette paper, like the whole cigarette, they empty the whole thing and they lower a tube that, of hash that fits inside. And people are like, no, man, it doesn't, but it does. That's, that's how they smoke their hash. They, 
They don't put the tobacco back in. They actually do that just cure those guys. But I think it's all of those things. Yeah, and with the yeah. BDs, what they this was old school. You know, this is uh, in the 60s, 70s. So they would use BDs to reload yeah. and then you smoke like that. I've done that. Or she would smoke with Could, a couldn't, couldn't afford cigarettes in those days. <laughs> Could afford BDs. Yeah. I, is, was there much of a Doha in the part of uh, uh, Asia where you were or no? A lot of what? Doha? Uh, Doha is like the just the tips of the tobacco leaf that you smoke it out of like a tinier pipe. Maybe there's a different name for it in that part of the world. No, okay. I'm still visualizing the the French knife throwers. Uh, did they have like the striped costumes and the beret? Like, did they do like a whole gymnastics routine, or what was the story with the French oh, knife throwers? Naked, or maybe they had a little g-string somewhere down there. sixty-eight, <laughs> everybody was naked. No, except for the fishermen. The fishermen still have this silver belt, like a thin chain around their waist. And fishermen were poor. They would just have a strip of cloth that they would pull from the front to the back and back the other way and tie off. That's the original G-string. But all of us were all naked. Well, well not all the time. Well, no, not but down the beach, and, and which was all the time in the daytime. That's really funny. Where you go, there's no lights or electric or anything. So you come home, you have some candles, and you go to sleep. You get up in the morning. It was very different life. <laughs> well, you could visit each other the nights when it was full moon. Hmm. But when the nights when there was no moon, you could hardly go visit further up the beach. <laughs> yeah, or you'd have, you know, inventiveness. It goes way back. You'd get a coconut. There's always half-empty coconut shells lying around because they need at least one or two per day for a household. So you take one of these all dried out, you can stand your candle in it and you kind of be able to hmm. have a, a beam going across the mountain with that. <laughs> it doesn't sound very good. <laughs> it works. Candle in a coconut shell. Perfect. Wind protection oh, around three quarters of the way. And if you get thirsty on the way, you can drink something out of your coconut. I don't know, I'm just visualizing. <laughs> uh, we had another question here. Uh, what was, uh, Sprainerd was asking, uh, what's some of your favorite uh, uh, hash strains uh, as far as, for example, the high and favorites for hash making? Or do you know, for example, from uh, uh, folks that you guys talk to? Well, like I say, nowadays there's so many different varieties of Sometimes, yeah, the last week I got some Gorilla Glue and some, what was the other one? I don't even know. But I'd never, you know, they aren't strange that they're usually available here. So I know for the first uh, 20 years of smoking, a friendly hash was my favorite. Then it got more diversified, then started making my own in the end. And, uh, yeah, now there's sometimes some very nice things come by, but I'm really bad at remembering these names. <laughs> and the other thing is that these days, there isn't the opportunity. The, she doesn't grow anything for, for years already. Since she started the business, basically, you kind of you have to pick and choose. 
she gave it up because of the kids and had the business to step into and start and kept going with the pollinator because it was legal. They're gonna, not going to cart you away because you're making machinery, whatever it is that people might be doing with it. Whereas, you know, there was a few close calls with the... Um, yeah, with the growing and they were getting bigger and bigger. And uh, then I suddenly realized I got four kids at home. If anything happens to me, what's going to happen to them? They so, came one day to our house in uh, breakfast time. Before so just, breakfast took me away. And kept her for a few days. Yeah. So what does she manage to do in that time? She's talked an ad out of them. She, uh, no, they talked an ad out of her. She had an ad in the North Holland. No, that stopped after that. I had that up until that time. Yeah. Yeah, and the oh, police no. magazine used to have an ad right from the beginning. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because yeah. they said that was so great. You know, she should be doing that, and then they wouldn't have to come around and hassle her all the time. Yeah. How far times change, or how far things can change, because of course you guys are still uh, somewhat subject to the to, to these weird old rules. But I was just thinking to myself, uh, there's very few uh, open uh, women growers and 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 cannabis breeders and everything else up until now. There's this uh, quite. Uh, I don't know, still probably less than 20% of any of the breeders or growers or anything else are, are female. And I think one of the reasons that I've heard, or at least one of the reasons I've heard, I think this is accurate, is that women, frankly, just uh, they're taking care of kids and stuff, and they think to themselves in terror, what would happen to my kids if I'm in jail? Whereas many of the, the dudes, basically, that grow weed, they're single dudes, or they're already divorced, or whatever else, for whatever reason, they have a different kind of calculus. They don't think, let's say, you know, if I'm in jail, the kids will be you know destitute on the street. It's very interesting to think this this kind of terror uh, existed uh, exists really until now probably in a lot of countries still and how do I put this some of us are talking about oh my favorite hash strain is this and I like to dab it off this deluxe ceramic blah 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 while someone else is worrying about the terror of losing their children you know it's it's really it's it's an interesting transition that we're going through right yeah, yeah. I was definitely like that in those days but on the uh, there not being so many lady growers and my mom has actually mentioned it a couple of times as well i mean if you're growing and you're a couple it's not something that you okay it was something that you were doing out in the woods but i didn't mean that i wasn't going out there as well but yeah. if something happens one person takes it all and you have somebody there with the kids she's a single mom so that's where that different mindset comes into it. But I think there's lots of families that grow where it's not just one person doing it. You know, I think well, she also I used says, to uh, remember in the 90s at the High Times Cups here in Amsterdam, at uh, 99%, oh. it would be the guy that came up on stage to claim the prize. But very often you'd find out it was his wife or girlfriend that took care of the growing. Yeah. My, I'm lucky. I'm fortunate enough to have a wife that uh, handles half of my growing. She, uh, she helps out anytime I need to. And sometimes I think the plants actually like her better. 
Uh, Potent and I, this is somewhat timely. Potent and I are going to meet with uh, uh, Ms. Jill next week. We might have a chance to interview her for the show, or we might at least uh, uh, just uh, uh, smoke a joint with her and talk to her. But Ms. Jill uh, uh, was, uh, uh, how do I say this, well-known, or I don't know, by a lot of people well-known as kind of the power behind uh, TGA. When, you know, Subcool was in jail, she was uh, taking care of their strains and doing all kinds of stuff, and she did a lot of their breeding. And anyway, the epic kind of uh, a person. But there's so few of those those folks, basically, in the industry. I'm, I'm looking forward to more. Like you say, there's so many good women gardeners in general that grow you know, all kinds of peaches and roses. They win all kinds of awards. Portland is this amazing rose city where I live is this rose city. And every year uh, women win these awards. So it's only going to be a matter of time before they're winning award after award after award in, in cannabis growing. It's going to be interesting to see. But. And like you say, that she stepped in and she could have only done that because she was already completely involved. She knows what's going on. She, you know, you can carry on what's while he isn't there. Right. Um, so it's not something that she's stepped into blind. She already had all that experience. And there's lots of women out there who just don't need the, the shine. It's their man who's standing in front, who's the name of the company, who's the, the brand or whatever. I think there's lots of that. I know in um, in Africa, the women are the, the majority of the farmers there. You know, when I was in Zimbabwe and South Africa, it's all women out in the fields, working in the fields. And they're the ones when, when we were growing cannabis in, in Zimbabwe, that's who I go ask about, hey, what, what pests are in the area? You know, what do you, what can you tell me about the soil? Because they, they could actually give me a good, a straight answer that, that was worthwhile. It wasn't worth, you know, any time talking to any of the guys in the shops or anything like that because they didn't know. You know, so. already tending all the vegetables. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So, you know, after the first week or two, I was like, well, okay, cool. I'm just going to, we're going to deal with them the rest, you know, from here on out. But we actually had uh, almost all women, it just, we had only two men on our whole team uh, down there. And it, just because they knew what was up and they were, much, you know, much better at guarding. In Colombia, they have a whole uh, women's group also doing everything just together with women. I even uh, came in contact with a group of Aborigines in uh, New Zealand, and that was also an all-women group growing weed. That was quite interesting. They'd all learned from their grannies. <laughs> it was always the women who were growing the weed. Tradition taught me all, all about gardening. I was growing up with my grandparents, and mostly my grandmother teaching me uh, they had a one acre plot in the backyard and they, they grew up pre-prohibition era and knew all the different, you know, teas that we pick ulo shoots to make our own cloning gel. We'd ferment <coughs> tomato leaves to spray on the grapes to treat for the Japanese beetles. And we made all of our own stuff. We didn't buy all that much for, for caring for the garden. And that's a whole thing that kind of is now getting a resurgence. But that was how you garden before World War II when they invented all these chemicals, you know. No, no, that knowledge has also mainly gotten lost. Yeah. Yep. Is there any uh, um, interesting uh, maybe uh, uh, teas or uh, fertilizers or pesticides or things that you saw that some of the different uh, cultures that you were exposed to kind of were, were brewing up or creating with different plant recipes or anything like that on a similar way that, that you observed over the years that really Still stuck in bit. your mind? We used to use an extract that was made from the leftovers of sugarcane after they had removed the sugar. 
So it was all minerals and stuff like that. And it was still somewhat sweet. And that would, uh, we would give that the last uh, three, four weeks of flowering. Uh, yeah, that made uh, it taste very nice. That seemed to help, but I don't know. I can't even remember the name of the brand. And even if I could, it probably wouldn't exist anymore under that name. So, but it was what left over from the sugar cane. Yeah, all the, yeah, that was uh, very good. I worked then with someone who used to measure his own pH and uh, decide accordingly what he was going to use. And he used this product quite a bit himself. <laughs> really interesting. Yeah, I've never heard of that. I've definitely heard of people mulching, like in Jamaica, they'll mulch all the time with the cane, the pressed cane, because there's all these leftover fibers and they don't really have anything to do with it. So they'll just chip it and yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that stuff is great for, for composting because all the sugars really helps the bacteria and the fungi just thrive in that. Yeah. Uh, a lot of folks, uh, uh, especially during the last, you know, couple of years with with uh, all the strange lockdowns and you know the, the, the you know the pandemics and everything else, have developed uh, hobbies because you know a lot of folks have been stuck indoors. So I hear about people doing either hobbies or you know side businesses or whatever. But a lot of folks have hobbies. I'm curious, do you guys have any hobbies that you've developed that you get really stoned and do? So for example, I know uh, Smash likes to play Grand Theft Auto. He gets a, a guy on my show. He likes to get really stoned and play Grand Theft Auto. I like to get stoned and juggle uh it's not something i talk about that often but it's just it's it feels different than being you know not stone and juggling i'm curious do you guys have anything that you've uh either currently or recently like for, you don't necessarily have to get stoned for example but perhaps you do you get stoned and then do that thing unless <laughs> at this time of year it's not possible but last summer i did a lot of cycling and yeah i would take my joints along have a couple before i left and and found some very nice spots to just pause and have another spliff and continue going. And I would always try and follow the water. So then you ended up with funny little wandering riverlets or sometimes a straight canal or a lake to go around. Yeah, I really enjoyed that with the nice weather and watching all the different flowers flower and grow and flower as the year progressed. Yeah, no, I really enjoyed that a lot. And then in Holland, you come to these little funny uh, canals further away. And then you had this metal boat that you had to sw swing the chain around and it would slowly pull you across. So you had to get yourself across. Or there was another place with a bridge that could go up. So if a boat would come by, he would get out and pull the bridge so it went up. But then if you came by and actually wanted to cross the bridge, you had to pull the other rope so that it came down again and then you could cross. So that was kind of uh, interactive uh, water crossings. That was quite nice. <laughs> and just lying in the grass and listening to the birds. That's enough for me. <laughs> That's awesome. Uh, uh, that's we, funny that they have that level of interactivity with the boat crossings. <laughs> something that I think that we're not used to here. <laughs> well, 
Life's different on a bicycle, huh? It's not as strenuous and you get a bit further and if you find some nice areas and we're not hilly. I mean, Holland is the perfect country to cycle. The whole country is flat as a pancake. I think our highest hill is like 200 meters <laughs> in the whole country. So for that cycling is easy. Yeah, and then you move slow enough that you can see things as you're going along for a little butterfly. So you stop. Yeah. We, uh, I like to read a lot. Uh, mostly uh, I like historical stuff. Now I'm reading something very interesting. It's called, where is it? That was such a nice book. I just started it. At the beginning of the, the whole story last beginning well whatever 2020 she started playing the piano again and that was really nice because she she was playing piano when she was younger it's nice to come in here and hear her she got really fed up because it's getting out of tune no that wasn't it i just had two memories how it used to sound when i played it and how it sounds now when i play it so this is the sound of a wild snail eating. And it's a fascinating little book. A woman gets bedridden and gets given a snail. And that's her only companion. <laughs> it's not one of those snails you were talking about earlier. I was just going to say, I was, I was curious if it was this. Uh, this was a lonely snail. <laughs> <laughs> No, he wasn't a water snail. So. No, he was not a water snail. But I think normal snails are pretty much similar. But it's true that there's been more time on everybody's hands and that reading has been something I've clutched back to also. It's really nice to have the time for that. Yeah. I've also, I'm reading a book I just got from my mother. And it's a wonderful book. It's uh, the Peter Fleming book. I've lost what it's called. The from Peking. To the men's and mountains. No, no, the one uh, news from Tartary. Mm. And it was written by this guy called Peter Fleming. In the thirties. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So he's traveled from Peking and he's trying to get to India. And I keep looking at the author and I'm thinking, Peter Fleming, Peter Fleming. And she's reading the book and telling me all this incredible stuff about it. I'm like, wow, this is wild. Finally, it turns out it's written by the brother of Ian Fleming, Mr. James Bond. And Mr. James Bond is the younger brother. So he's got this older brother who does all this incredible shit. He was in the, the in, during the war years, he was working for the, you know, it doesn't look like you're working for anybody. And uh, he had incredible stories right. and he was also an author. So he's published and all of this stuff. And then the little brother is coming along and he's like, yeah, no, I want to be an author too. So his brother even wrote a, a tongue-in-cheek thriller to egg him on just before he came out with Casino Royale. The book is amazing. It's an incredible journey because they can't even tell anybody where they want to go. It's totally against Secret. the rules yeah. to go to India from China. <laughs> So yeah, the books have been wonderful. 
healthy hobby. Um, what about you, Milos? What's your been uh, been your favorite uh, hash and and strains? Uh, I don't think we heard from you on that one. Uh, well, like she says, it's a luxury we don't have because there's so little available. And then we say that, and that's kind of a lie because there are coffee shops here. Cookies has uh, is gone into business with somebody here, so they are already in the Amsterdam market. We have Turps Army with all sorts of stuff. But if you're paying 150 euros, it can be for half a gram, but even if it's for one gram, even I, I, that's, uh, that's outside of my <laughs> budget. <laughs> Especially if you're used to smoking maybe close to a gram a day. <laughs> <laughs> What do you mean a gram a day? We smoke a lot more than that with this. My son lives with me and we both smoke and that's the only vice we have. And yes, we smoke a lot, but you don't smoke that kind of quality. Well, you get the nicest Moroccan you can, the best price you can. So I'm not knocking the Moroccan these days. If you can get some nice Beldia, but it takes us all the way back to the fashion problem, you know? The Moroccans also aren't stupid. And when they see the prices and the quantities that people get off of an amnesia plant, well, it just it doesn't compete with what they're getting from their own plants. So at this point, it's very hard to find. They're still calling it Belvia, but the experts like this friend of my mom's, he's the one who can always say, oh, not you can taste a little bit. It's it's being affected everywhere in Morocco. They don't have their traditional strains protected. There's well, very few people who manage to do that. About a quarter of the coffee shops here get owned by Moroccans, so they all have their whole village and family sitting back home. Uh, whatever they hear is in fashion, even from the states. They can get the seeds, send them down there. And then they'll also have it in their coffee shop. So a lot of these American strains at the moment here, I think, are just grown in Morocco. Yeah, or in Spain. Spain is the the big source right now for all the hashes that okay. have fancy names, American names, in other words. It's like everywhere in the world now. We are are trying to emulate. America, because you have so many choices, you have so many things that none of us have anymore. You know, we don't have this freedom. We don't have the. But I think we will. I think we will sooner than all our gloomy projections, just because Malta has already done it. No holds barred. Italy is on the verge. They're very close to Malta, you know, and this is domino effect. When you see your neighbors doing well, it's the same how you dominoed it all the way across the states. You know? When you see uh, the, a couple of states next to you and it's all going okay and you don't have all your teenagers suddenly turning into raving junkies, well, maybe it's all right, you know? And how much money did they make last year? Wow, <laughs> okay, maybe we try it also. 
I've even heard of people having mature discussions. Can you imagine that? An actual mature discussions. It's, it's rare and few and far between these days. But uh, mature discussions about, actually from kids, believe it or not. I've heard some younger people uh, around saying, hey, we should actually raise the drinking age and lower the smoking age, like the weed smoking age. And I thought to myself, how strange is that? When I was a kid, we always chafed because in the U.S. we have this, you know, you guys are, are like, what, 16, 15 or whatever. Here it's 21 to drink alcohol. And so uh, traditionally what happens is a lot of really irresponsible stuff honestly like everybody that i know or every high schooler that everybody that i know that went to high school knows somebody knows a few people that had a horrific car crash because they were drunk they were you know drinking somewhere in a field somewhere it was this really irresponsible culture basically because of that illegality of, of alcohol and kids were always trying to sneak away and drink and whatever anyway these days evidently a lot of the, the the entire culture has changed and a lot of kids are thinking about for example smoking weed chilling out playing video games hanging out with th- uh, friends but not even drinking until they're like 24 or 25. And so I've literally heard people talking about raising the drinking age, not above, like below 21, like a lot of people I think would have asked, but rather raising it to 23, 24, something like that, and lowering the weed smoking age to like 16 or 18. That's, I don't know, it's intriguing to me that, how do I say that? I don't think that that's ever going to happen in the near future in the U.S., but it's intriguing that there are people talking about it, you know. Anyway. That was, I think, somewhere in the 90s that they changed their age here. It was used to always be 16. And then they raised it higher. I don't even know what it is now. Do you have to be 21 or is 18 still good? But it used to be always 16 for years. I've grown up on the East Coast in Philly. It was 21, but we could drive up to Quebec and it was 19. So we'd go out and party in Montreal for the weekend and come back, you know, and we could, you know. (laughs) Plus we had, you know, you're not going to drive to Montreal and drive back. So we'd always have a hotel room and walk back to the hotel rather than drive around like an idiot. But yeah, I don't know. It's funny at different places, different cultures. I've also seen in some countries too, where like kids learn to drink responsibly at home with the family. And they kind of avoids that whole like new thing binge culture, which I think also is, uh, you know, in some cultures it, it is, but it has to be cultures that have more of that family dynamic. Not every culture has that family or community dynamic that kind of supports that either, you know? So it really just depends on, on what your culture is in your local area, if that's going to benefit or hurt it. Yeah. yeah, when you envision a French family or an Italian family all sitting around and a glass of wine and all that, or then I think of an English family where binge drinking is, is ingrained, you know, that they've all grown up with. You have to, because the bar is going to be closed by them. You know, it was that mentality that got that well ingrained. And now it's drink as much as you can, as fast as you can, because it's going to finish soon. <laughs> so, yeah, you have a very different dynamic drinking there it's not something that you sit around at home and do with family i don't know if it was the same in uh, the u.s but over here they discovered that during uh, all these lockdowns and covid they smoked more weed and hash and drank less so I don't know if that was the case in the U.S. Here I heard the states that had legal weed, they smoked huge amounts more. Uh, it was one of the reasons why I think they they parallel kind of kept the, the weed stores open. There was a lot of tax revenue and they basically kept people quiet in their houses or whatever else. Uh, but in the states where they did not have legal weed, I think they drank a lot more, which I think is actually quite unhealthy, you know. Yeah, well, here we have coffee shops and that. 
close them for one day, the first lockdown, and open it immediately the next morning already. <laughs> it was <laughs> pretty instantaneous. And sometimes when it's locked down, you can just take and go. When it's not particularly locked down, you can still have your coffee there and uh, smoke. Yeah. But interesting that you're getting these numbers at the time that you're transitioning so that it's very plain and clear which states are drinking more and which aren't. You know? Those are numbers that they can't argue with. It's not numbers that, you, that we are making up as a smoking side of it. Interesting. Oh, yeah, and the other thing uh, that they've noticed in the states that have legal cannabis, they have a huge drop in opioid use and, and opioid deaths. They have mm -hmm. a huge drop in fatal car accidents because a stone driver breaks early versus a drunk driver, which, you know, doesn't realize it. You know, a stone guy will wait for the stop sign to turn green, but he's not going to sail through the intersection, right? Like, it's like a different kind of, you know, experience, you know what I mean? It just it leads to less uh, severe car accidents. But I know in Colorado, the first year was an 18% reduction in fatal car accidents, the first year of legalization. So that was a pretty large number because that is one of the bigger killers in the United States for, you know, non-heart related uh, uh, deaths. Yeah. Wow, that's really a big number. Yeah, 18. Yeah, we suddenly raised by quite a large percentage the number of deaths with bicycle accidents, but it turned out those were all electric bike <laughs> bikes, <laughs> and they go so fast. Especially older people don't uh, really uh, know how to deal with it, so they've had a really notable higher rate of cycle deaths. Manual electric bikes. Yeah, this is the new rage. I've uh, nearly accidentally killed. I don't know how many electric bikes I was driving somewhere the other day and I was on this windy road that was dangerous enough for cars, honestly, and it was rainy and stuff. And there was an electric bike guy behind me with no lights dressed all in black. <laughs> I only noticed it because there was this weird waving thing behind me. And I thought, what the heck is this? And it was a bike rider and he was driving like 40 miles an hour on these windy roads. Anyway, basically, how do I say this? By not breaking a couple times, I just basically almost didn't kill him because he was right, 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 right behind me. Um, yeah. I think I these managed to do it to each other because they're just so unused to it. They just crash right into it. Our friend crashed into someone the other day. Oh, <laughs> and they were both quite younger. They just go too fast or something. Yeah. And they never wear uh, helmets either, I guess, because it's not uh, fashionable, probably. Uh, Have you had any um, uh, of the newer extracts that you thought were particularly different? I know there's so many different types of uh, uh, ones aside from the traditional hash, as far as dabs. I know you have the, the hash um, uh, parties that you throw on. Um, is there anything that someone brought there to any of those, or maybe a top three that you, you thought were particularly interesting or different? Well, I had a very nice diamond the other day. That was really something special. I don't uh, usually have a nice square box. Um, I'm just easy. I'm happy with everything. <laughs> have you ever tried... Um, 
backwards. Okay. Yeah, but if you hold it up, or is it still there? Something to see. Uh, the big chunk of it is gone. There was one map, but hold it up where the camera is. Somewhere. Wait a minute. Not shining in it. This is complicated. I haven't done this before. Bear with me one minute. Yeah. Ah, okay. That helps. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Kind yeah. of. But I don't it's think this was even my your light. Idea. <laughs> yeah, it was. Came from Germany, I believe. Okay. Okay. So there is people that do make this kind of stuff. They're just very rare and in between. Very, very nifty. Uh, what? Shoot, I had a. And probably also most of the people that I grew up smoking and growing with, many of them are retired or dead or whatever. And now it's all a whole group of younger generations and another generation and another one that uh, <coughs> I don't know so many of. Uh, I know uh, we're big fans of using mullein leaf, uh, dried mullein leaves or partially dried mullein leaves uh, for rolling as wrappers. Uh, it helps open the lungs up and stuff like that. Um, uh, I've also had corn cob in Jamaica and I've had nakla leaf and some other stuff in, in Jamaica. Um, what other, have you ever had different types of other plants that were used as wraps that you thought were particularly tasty? I've had rose petals as well. Um, is there other ones that you found uh, maybe traveling around or other different forms of, of uh, wrapping that you thought was particularly tasty or unique or interesting? I've only actually really used the Indian beedi leaf. And that's the tobacco leaf. And it's from the beedi tree. The Bodhi tree? Yeah, as far as I know, anyway. But for the rest, I just like my joints to taste like joints. I'm not in favor of strawberry rolling papers. <laughs> no, are you in favor of strawberry weed though let's say for example like are you in favor of uh wes here is a favor is in fan uh, a fan of uh kind of aggressively uh offensive flavors i mean wes you're into a lot of different flavors not gonna Funky, put words in your mouth, yeah. but yes yeah, like everything but fuel, like, yeah, I like foul strong, yeah. you're talking about like dead animal aromas all kinds of foul aromas he's into uh, i traditionally have not been super into the like super i'm kind of into skunky but more sweet skunk you know not really into the foul skunk stuff and the the I don't know. A, a, a big one that always kind of just icks me out is like cat piss or halitosis, for example. They, they weird me out. But uh, I don't know. Are you into, let's say, the fruity strains or, or I don't know, lemony or, or something more complex? What do you like? I try and avoid smoking meat as much as I can. <laughs> right. <You're smoking> <laughs> one time in, uh, I remember, think how often it happens. I was in Argentina and we'd run out of everything. And we'd taken, we were on a road, it was a thousand miles long and it would wipe turn off and we missed it. <laughs> anyway, we ended up having to buy some of what they called Paraguay brick. And it was terrible, it just gave me a headache. I couldn't. And then when I, go, after I moved from India back to Holland, of course the whole city was full of coffee shops with weed. And I tried it a few times, but it's just not my choice. 
Well, so I guess I should have said I, I I I often forget honestly that you you only smoke hash. Do you like the let's say for example uh, Stranana hash, or do you like let's say more of the I don't know. Uh, what do you guys actually have, honestly, for strains for hash? We haven't even asked you. I don't know that we have asked you that simple question. What strains of hash do you have? Have we? Or, or am I just too high? A few days ago, somebody gave me this Corina Groove, and I really liked it. But I have no comparison to all those different strains mm. that you have in the States. So I'm spoiled. Yeah. Yeah. So I just get an occasional one. I really like this. Uh, Diamonds, I like that Gorilla Glue. Something that is just different from what I normally smoke is usually really nice for a change. <laughs> we are getting really spoiled, aren't we? Like, it's it's really funny to think, and it's really strange to think because we have viewers. Uh, we had somebody from Sicily just a moment ago saying hello. Uh, here we are in, you know, legal states. Uh, Potent is in the... Le Everybody in America is puzzled by this because Oklahoma is not known to be the paragon of liberal ideas and everything else but it's literally the most liberal cannabis but cannabis laws you can find in the entire country and you know here i am over in oregon where it is one of the more liberal states but less you know liberal in the cannabis laws anyway how do i say it we're still spoiled because i could go to any of the dispensaries around here there's unironically 200 300 dispensaries around the portland area there's probably the same thing around his area i, I wouldn't be surprised if there's literally the same even though oklahoma is not hugely populated either there's probably that many dispensaries and more we we can get Gorilla Glue in probably rosin, hash rosin, bubble hash, BHO, uh, eth uh, ethanol extraction, CO2 extraction, some other extraction I haven't thought of, distillate, something else, also flour, uh, organic flour, uh, probably semi-organic flour, on and on and on and on and on. And that's just one strain, right? So <laughs> we're spoiled. I'm so totally bewildered. And everybody wants to let me have me try their personal favorite strain, and in the end, I just and then the names go in and out. I'm just terrible at this. <laughs> Usually, I just say whatever I'm smoking right this second is the best because it's got nothing to do with the past or the future. It's what's happening now, so it's the best. <laughs> Oklahoma currently has, as of this month, twenty. 2,238 dispensaries, wow. uh, 8,306 cultivation licenses, 1,500 processor licenses, uh, 100 transport licenses, 28 testing laboratories, uh, and uh, almost 2,000 caregivers. That, <laughs> almost 2,000 caregivers that grow for sick patients as well. So, wow. It sounds like you got heaven on earth right there, and it's very different from what's going on here. Yeah. And who would have thought that Oklahoma would be more liberal than Amsterdam? Like, especially like 10 years ago, like what happened? Uh, something definitely happened. And here they try and close more coffee shops than open new ones. I don't know any new ones that opened in the last 10 years or so. No, they no. have lots of new coffee shops, but they move in to an old coffee shop. They just yeah. take over the license from the last guy and... Sometimes they keep the name, then they change it slowly. That's how we get in the coffee shop. <laughs> you know, I say cookies is in town, but that's because they joined up with the greenhouse and greenhouse coffee shop guys. So one of the greenhouse coffee shops is now the cookies lounge. 
you know, like, so it's not a new coffee shop, but if you go into a coffee shop here, we are offered grass, we are offered, uh, oh, whatever, we get some isolator, and we get ash. And weed. Yeah, some grass and weed, that's it. And in this last two years, the menus sometimes have gone down to where there will be one or two kinds of grass. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. Yeah, well, the last couple of years, it's been yeah. really extreme. And now, luckily, it's picking up again a bit. But the, the, the variety, that's all we get. It doesn't, uh, it's not like we're missing out on the other bits right now, but we never had those other bits. No rosin, no nothing. I was just going to say, uh, has it gotten a lot harder to get product uh, since the beginning of 2020 when everything kind of went to shit? Yeah. No, yeah. it's not harder to go to a coffee shop. But of course, international travel is pretty much stopped. So all these ashes from Asia are much harder to come by. Yeah, the coffee shops haven't uh, suffered. They don't have the same options. It's the transport lines that have been affected. Like she says, there's no travel, and there's also the larger scale transports that aren't happening because of lockdowns in this country that we're not dealing with, or you know, all this stuff. So, older, more settled transport lines like Morocco have, have many coming here. They've closed, closed, they've closed their country. There's no flights in and out of there. There's, at this point, it's only in dire emergencies, and it's at about five times the regular price of a ticket. And then there's so few people, you're not going to walk off with a bag with something in it. You know? <laughs> so, and yeah, no trucks coming, no produce, no nothing. Well, there is some, but not compared to what it normally used to be. No. Oh, yeah, it's coming and going in waves. We have new, new rules. Have you, um, have you grown anything else aside from cannabis? Is there any other vegetables or plants or anything that you're also passionate about growing or gardening uh, aside from cannabis? Well, something totally different. I'm passionate about going to build my own house. And I will build it with wood, handcrete, and loam. It's what they use traditionally. And that's where I'm quite passionate now at the moment, but it's very difficult to find a suitable spot of land. I nearly bought a big field, but then it turned out because it had never had a building standing in that particular spot before, it would cost like 100,000 just to prepare the soil before you could even start putting foundation or a house on there. So that made the thing a bit too pricey right now. But I'm trying to do that, but I'd be ready to be wanting to do that for a couple of years. And it's very difficult to find a nice spot here. And it's very regulated. Like even they have what they call a plan for the locality. So the locality where I wanted to buy the field, that the outside should be of bricks and that it should have a pointy roof on it. Now I want to build a bungalow. I don't want stairs in my house anymore. Uh, at my age, uh, better I just stay on one floor. And uh, I don't want bricks on the outside. No, I want to build a CO neutral house. And you'd think there'd be some 
you know, consideration that maybe that's a good idea, but no, no, it just has to conform to all the other houses in that village or whatever. It's very difficult to get across and to really to be able to build what you want. And of course, then it has a garden, but her gardens were always beautiful gardens. It's been a long time since we had vegetable gardens and yeah, stuff like that. And flower garden. So I just wanted to make a big plot of land and have a nice eco-friendly house on it and grow veggies and flowers for whatever years are still there. And uh, yeah, so that's my newest passion. But the question is, what do you like to grow? Oh, I will grow all kinds of things. I will probably also try and grow some nice uh, wheat to make some home hash. <laughs> Besides wheat, what do you like to grow? <laughs> well, I have a long-term uh, rule about what comes in my garden. It should either taste good or smell good. And otherwise, uh, it doesn't need a place, really. <laughs> That's a good one. Yeah, that's my general rule, what I put in my cart. I think more weed was the right answer. What was wrong with that answer, guys? Like, come on. <laughs> I just get into trouble. Like, legally, I'm allowed to grow five plants, officially. But then a friend of mine, he nurtured and tended and had his five plants grow nearly the height of his house, and they got confiscated anyway. They're not meant to grow that enormous plants. So I also don't want to lose my house because of a couple of hundred plants. <laughs> yeah, and if like me, you don't own your own house, then you lose your rent contract and get kicked out for having plants in the house. So yeah, it's it makes it a bigger gamble than I'm willing to take. So I end up smoking. More often, <laughs> for now. But if I had other things, uh, oh, yeah, some beautiful Manali, or I still, I can tell you exactly what Afghani smells like and what it feels like. And I didn't smoke in the years that I had that around me. But the smell of an Afghani piece of hash is special, huh? That's nice hash, wow. Do you, uh, do you two have any advice for women that want to get into hash making or into the cannabis industry that uh, might kind of see it as kind of a boys club or something that's not as welcoming? Do you have any advice for them to kind of, uh, um, you know, that, that want to get into the industry? Well, just do it. I mean, I don't know what else to say. Just do it and, and try and work a way around that you can do it and and follow your heart, do what you want to do most. If you really love growing, then do that. If you really love hash making or extract making, whatever it is. Um, and I do believe if there's anything that you love doing and you do it for 10 years, you're an expert. <laughs> I always say, as far as my growing goes, I learned most from my mistakes. I made a lot of mistakes, so I learned a lot. <laughs> Mind you, in those days, they didn't really have books you could follow. No, they had to write those books after they made all the mistakes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs>
<laughs> that's why it's better to just go visit the guys that have been doing it for a couple of hundred years like you did and uh and just learn from them instead and skip that whole part <laughs> no i love the growing i love watching things grow uh whether it's roses or uh, lavender or whatever it is also wheat i love the just to see things grow and, and yeah, that really uh, makes me feel good. <laughs> All right, well, we've had you on for quite a long time. I don't want to tie up uh, your, your whole night. It's been a, a wonderful evening, uh, uh, Amsterdam time with you and uh, an afternoon my time. And uh, uh, I really appreciate you and uh, Milos for joining us this evening. Um, do you want to tell everybody uh, one last time how they can find out about you and uh, and all the awesome stuff that you've done? We have the pollinator.nl for people listening in audio format. Um, uh, you can check out her website. She has a, a dry sift separators and bubble hash, uh, 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 water hash bags and all kinds of other things. So uh, we're wonderful books as well. Uh, and uh, yeah, uh, uh, anything else that you wanted to add to that, Mila? Or can you no, but there we are on Instagram and, yeah. and on Facebook and we're all over there. <laughs> oh, that's our NFT. <laughs> yes, that's her Instagram page. She doesn't see her Instagram page. That's what I do. <laughs> <laughs> all right. This one she knows. Anyway, <laughs> I want to thank you guys for taking uh, the time also to talk to us. And uh, yeah, I'd like to keep in contact. And uh, I hope when I come to the States, where we can meet up sometime, somewhere. That would be great. And if you ever come, to me, um, you're more than welcome. Oh, yeah, we'd love to have you. And if you ever need a place to stay, uh, I'm just outside of Oklahoma City. We'll come pick you up and go to the a guest guest space you can stay in. Uh, it's real nice. So uh, yeah, it's <laughs> nice. To crash. I have a whole new place that I might want to go. I never considered Oklahoma a place that I would need to or want to go, but it sounds a fabulous place. <laughs> What's nice? A lot of the African genetics grows really well here because it's hot. It's humid part of the time and it gets really dry. So they kind of get kind of waxy and we get that high temperatures. So you get a lot of some similar types of hash from those, those hotter areas. It really is uh, the, the strains that excel here are the ones that are like that environment more. So, well, wonderful. Thank you so much. And uh, it was a pleasure having you on this evening. Absolutely. Yes. <laughs> Thank you very much. Have you all. Um, you also, <laughs> you up in the little corners there. <laughs> uh, thanks a lot. I'll yeah. try and stop in again. Uh, it'd be great to have you back on the show, uh, uh, especially now that Wes has read it. I actually have your book. I have to read it as well. I, I, I just I have no excuse. I have to read it. <laughs> but you're welcome back on the show. Uh, absolutely delightful conversation, honestly. Oh, yeah. You're on at an impossible hour, so that's only when I'm I'm a night bird and I'm still awake at all these impossible hours. I'm never <laughs> <laughs> Too late for me though. Hey, no worries. <laughs> right. We'll have to do daytime shows or something. That'll be fun. Right. Well, well, thank you again. And then uh, Wes, yeah. do you want to tell 
everybody how to find you as well? I, I don't need to be found. Uh, <laughs> you can find me on Fumidor Show. And uh, yeah. yeah, I got fish Instagram. like to be found right behind him. That's it. Yeah. What about but you, no, Fumidor? thank you so much, Mila Milus, for uh, coming on. Uh, yeah, no, you guys are great guests. I, I've been looking forward to talking to you guys again. And, and yeah, no, it's always a pleasure. And thank you for sharing so much with us. And, Is that literally your pollinator right behind you? That's it right there. Subtle. Signed by Mila. (laughs) There it is. Awesome. Perfect product placement. uh, Lots of love and uh, thanks a lot for this opportunity to talk with you guys. And I'll be happy to meet up later in the year. I managed to smoke two whole joints. I'm so stoned with (laughs) (laughs) Like, we keep wandering off of questions and then coming back to them about <laughs> I have to uh, I have to fly to South Africa here in a couple and uh, probably uh, uh, after May but maybe I can try to make a stop in Amsterdam uh, uh, depending on uh, what the lockdown situation is like uh, that might be fun maybe yeah. a, a good excuse now hopefully by then it won't be locked down anymore there's enough protest going on. Anyway, we'll see. <laughs> I saw you guys. I also loved, I saw the protests from there and it was classy. They had picnic picnic blankets out, the whole family out of basket, you know, all kinds of nice silverware and nice plates. Like it was really, really funny when they did that outside of the restaurants and stuff. It uh, was, looked like a Monet painting or something, but like a modern version. They're not allowed to demonstrate, but they're allowed to drink tea and coffee together. So this way they're not demonstrating, but they're <laughs> And they still have all their banners up from uh, that they don't agree and all the rest of it. Yeah. I just think uh, it's funny how, how much more uh, classy and civilized it is than some of the other protests that you see in the States. Yeah, but also the, uh, you know, the week before they had protesters that got beat up horribly by cops. It could have happened on one of your <laughs> news things in the States. This happens more often than here. But they really whacked them. Yeah. Not nice. Yeah. Yeah, that's why I think they try this whole family approach. Yeah. And then they're managing to avoid getting the more rowdy elements and keeping them out, uh, just to keep the image clean. And then people have to listen to them more. So yeah. just hoping that they get it together and we can all right. actually see each other in person as opposed to. We've learned so much about this new media forum, all this Zooming and, and live talks. And this is all in the last two years. Yeah, yeah. My world. <laughs> That's been nice. It's, it's allowed us access to so many people that we wouldn't have access to before. I know when I was doing the, uh, because of the uh, stuff going on right now in the world, we've had to do the aquaponic conference uh, uh, virtually, but it's allowed us to do like live tours of farms around the world and kind of a whole different experience that was kind of neat in some ways but still not as nice as sitting in the same room together you know that's the best of all let's hope it comes soon (laughs) take care and stay healthy take it easy (laughs) Um, uh, what about you Fumi? uh how do people find you what's that 
I should unmute myself. There we go. That's better to, to talk. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, find me on my channel, Fumidor and the Flavors on YouTube. Uh, that's the easiest way. The show is uh, Chronic Table. That says there right on my thingy. I think the potent uh, might be locked, but that's okay. You can see me in the little tiny corner, as you guys say. Uh, my website is uh, Fumidoro.com, uh, F-U-M-I-D-O-R-O.com. Take a look at uh, genetic preservation kits and, and more and contact page and all that kind of stuff. That's the way. Cheers. And, uh, thanks for everybody for watching today. You can find me in audio format on the Growing with Fishes podcast on your favorite podcast app. We're on over 500 different platforms now, I think, uh, total. And then um, you can find me uh, on YouTube and video format, uh, Potent Ponics. And um, if you want to take our class, apmjclass.com. Uh, thanks, everybody, for watching. And uh, we'll be uh, have a ton of cool content next week with Fumi in person. So we'll, we'll see you guys. Be good, dude. We're having uh, uh, big plans, big plans. Yeah, big road trip with a bunch of cool stops along the way. You guys are going to like.